Hey, welcome everyone to the Spiritual Underground Podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm with you here today, uh, not recording from the wood shop, uh, doing having some opportunities to reach out a little bit and talk to some folks that uh, that the best avenue is uh, Zoom and things like that to capture these stories. And I, and I like the way that just uh, spreads this recovery web, and and I get to pick up some um, some ideas that I probably wouldn't be accessing if it wasn't for avenues like this. So. Uh, welcome to the show. This is primarily a 12-step based podcast. Um, most of my guests have recovered through that, although I am open and love to explore all areas that people find their true selves. Uh, as I say over and over, my definition of recovery is to uh, find that which was lost or stolen and that true self, our true voice, who are who we really are, uh, is recovery. And it's kind of been pigeonholed to, uh, to overcoming substance abuse, but um, uh, you know, some people don't, some people are just as, uh, unhappy, not addicted to substances. And, uh, and there's avenues that those finds, fi- those folks find their way out. Also, it's kind of like, uh, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. I'm all, I'm all have struggles in my life and my job is to overcome those and, uh, then turn around and help people overcome the same hurdle I had to jump. Um, so I do a number of ways that I go looking for guests. You know, sometimes they just show up at my doorstep and I don't really have to work for them. Uh, in the beginning of the podcast, I had wrangled all my friends to come in and, and talk. And uh, and I use Facebook and social media and also have a, a service uh, that emails me that hooks me up with guests. And I, I think... Uh, I don't I don't find people that fit this niche very often on there. Um, and uh, I was poking around. I, d- I actually delete the emails probably more times than not before reading them. And I don't know, last week sometime I hit the read button and read it and scrolled down a little bit. And I see a guy that's uh, a recovery-based gentleman. And uh, <clears throat> I really do feel like the universe leads me today, that I'm not really you know in control of what's going on. I had to take some actions behind that stuff. But uh Almost, you know, I have to hit that button, contact this dude when I see that. I can just feel it. So I did, and he responded, and uh, we set up a date. And uh, so, uh, welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you. Uh, Appreciate it. I didn't, I did, uh, I have only one rule. Uh, most of these get marked explicit, but uh, what I'm trying to, my only rule that I do, and that's mainly for the local stuff, is that I don't, I don't have the right to uh, blow anybody else's anonymity. Uh, so I just try to use the first uh, first names on here when I'm referring to other people. Uh, my anonymity went out the window when I started this podcast, obviously. Uh, so I and usually and when I put the when I put the uh, and I'm okay with putting first and last name if somebody's wanting that for sure. Uh, sometimes that's a uh, a positive in the in the promotional world, but. Uh, I usually would say Eric M story, you know, that's simple as what I'd say. So it's up to you on where you want to do with your anonymity here today. I'll protect it to the level you need to. I've even often some guests that they could come in in an alias if they wanted to. I don't really care if you call yourself Bob, you know, uh, it doesn't really matter what your name is when you're in here telling this story. Uh, but anyway, uh, what do you have? What's your sobriety date? Uh, July 15th, 2013 which is um, one of many that I've had in the past. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's what we were talking about in, in the background here has got pain, failure, and misery. Um, multiple sobriety dates seem to be another thing that just comes with the territory of uh, trying to navigate it. And um, 
unsuccessfully until one day, you know, I have no idea why my current sobriety date stuck. Uh, mine is January the 1st of 2015. Everybody kind of laughs about it being New Year's Day like it was a resolution or something, but it was just a pure accident. That just as was the, last, <laughs> the the night before was the last time that I had a drink. Uh, so tell me a little bit about uh, where you grew up and what your uh, upbringing was like. And I know you're on the West Coast now, but a minute ago you hinted to having some ties to Indiana. I do, yeah. So, uh, so I was born in California. And uh, my dad was born in Griffith, Indiana. That's kind of what we were talking about. And uh, uh, his mom, my grandmother, they ended up moving, obviously, to California when my dad was was young. He was, you know, he went to high school out here in Montebello. So I was born in, um, uh, I was born down here in Southern California. And we moved a lot. And I think this was a big factor in my story. Um you know, I was, uh, we moved, um, to Northern California. My dad actually worked for bank of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he moved to San, we moved to Danville, which is in Northern California. He worked in San Francisco. Um, we moved there when I was in, uh, fourth grade, then we were there one year, then we moved to Pennsylvania and we lived in Pennsylvania for a year and a half, moved back to Northern California. And I think this was a big part of my story because, um, I always felt, and I always knew in my heart, I guess you could say that friends were never going to last, mm. that, you know, you get friends and then boom, I'm gone. You know, I moved somewhere else, always having to reconnect with new people. Um, and I think it became kind of a, um, just sort of a disconnect that I, that I started to develop with people. Um, Don't get too close because they're not going to last too long. (laughs) Exactly. And so uh, we moved back to Northern California when I was in junior high. um, And I was at a a a public school there, finished that. Then my parents put me in a private high school. So again, all those people that I was friends with, now they're gone back to to a a private. It was actually a Christian high school. Hmm. and that's actually where all my trouble began. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I had great parents. I have great parents. Um, they, my dad was not around much because of his work. Um, and he was traveling a lot. So I was prim- primarily spending a lot of time with my mom. Never really felt I connected well with my mom. Never felt like she understood me. Um, I think I had depression when I was young. Um, I was very thin, you know, they always talk about how, how, um, you know, people that are overweight always get made fun of. I was excessively thin and I got made fun of a lot. Hey, me and you are in the same boat there. (laughs) I was stick. I was twig. They'll break me. Like, you know, the wind's going to blow me over. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff I heard, you know, riding in on a chicken or an ostrich or something like that. And absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, so that led a lot of fights to me, you know, so I ended up fighting a lot when I was young, was not a great fighter at all. Yeah. I usually yeah, skinny got and not a great and skinny and fighting usually don't come, uh, don't compliment one another. <laughs> exactly. Usually got my ass beat pretty good, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but then I, you know, I, I started drinking at first. Um, my friend actually lived across the street from our school and he wanted to, uh, 
wanted me to grab some booze one day, bring it to his house. Um, I brought, stole a bottle of vodka from my mom's cabinet, mm. went to his house, had no idea how it was going to feel. I took uh, a, about a half a 20 ounce glass, filled it up and I just pounded it. Oh, and, um, and I didn't feel anything at first, you know, like immediately. And I was like, right, let's do it again. <laughs> so I ended up taking another big shot. Um, and I felt amazing. You know, I'm like, this is, this is awesome. You know? And, um, I ended up going to school, we went to school and we always prayed right before our class being a Christian high school. My prayer was very different than theirs. And I turned white as a ghost. I said, God, if you can please help me survive, I feel like shit and I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Immediately after prayer went out and I puked everywhere. And, oh, wow. uh, so they sent me home, but yeah, I guess I mean, you could actually probably say my prior substance was smoking. I mean, cigarettes, you know, were, um, and I literally would wake up in the morning I'd go downstairs. I'd huff, you know, cigarette, I'd smoke it really fast. I'd get the head rush and just loved it. And I'd kind of literally sit down from that head rush. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's always what I began looking for. Yeah. Yep. Cigarettes are certainly my gateway drug. They were the first thing that I started getting a head change off of that made me looking for how else, what else will do this for me. Yep. And that was, you know, that was kind of my story was just uh, every, I just fell in love with that different feeling, you know, that, that altered state of, um, you know, I had a friend say, Hey, you know, if you dry up banana peels, you get high. What? I dried up banana peels. I smoked it. I didn't get high. I got a massive <laughs> headache, but, <laughs> but that's, you know, and, um, and then I started getting in major trouble. Um, when I was a sophomore in high school at this Christian school, um, my parents were getting, my parents for the first time left me and my brothers alone at home. Um, my older brother and I didn't get a well, get along very well. Um, we had, we fought all the time. I knew things were going to go really bad when my parents left. Mm. Um, he ended up bringing his girlfriend to the house, basically said, you need to get out, you know? And so I planned ahead on this and I actually, um, took the key to my mom's van, um, made a copy of it and put it back. Um, kind of expecting for this, this idea of leaving, you know, for the, for the night. And so I, without a license, right. Left, um, Saturday night, whatever, went to, uh, pick up that same friend that crossed the street from the school. Yeah. We went to Oakland. Um, this guy knew a guy, his name was dirty red. <laughs> <laughs> And we ended up getting a whole case of malt liquor. Um, and we started just pounding this malt liquor, driving around, no license. I'm driving around through Oakland, went back, ended up over by his house, just drunk, just hammered drunk. And we ended up, uh, and so he actually also had a master key to the school. And so we ended up going through the school um, and just trashed the place. We stole money out of the, the, every bit of money we could find in the different rooms. Um, we just tore the place up and, um, ended up, uh, back at, 
my uh, back in my house we split up all the stuff we had stolen yeah um, i had to clean our van because it just reeked like booze um spent hours cleaning that thing and uh and nobody was of the wiser really went to school the next day and uh cops were everywhere um and then uh, went home thinking damn i got away with this and went back to school the next day principal called me in the office said i know what you did um I'm like i don't know what you're talking about and apparently the guy that had the master key there was some big long story about how they, they ended up figuring it. some guy like years ago had stolen a key he made a copy gave it to somebody so it was like this whole lineup of how they figured out it ended up coming down to this guy and so he ratted on me and um, i got arrested mm. for uh, you know destruction of property grand theft uh, you know burglary you know all kinds of stuff um and so ended up getting kicked out of that school back to another school went to a, a public school uh, and the summer came after that semester the summer came and i had um uh, me and this guy had gone to downtown danville uh we hot wired up some tractors this whole story is like crazy <laughs> we hot wired these tractors up and uh they were doing construction on this you know building this site or whatever in the town so they hot wired it up and we started having wars with these tractors oh right? nice and um of course cops showed up i mean we were smashing into them and stuff and we'd been drinking again um and got arrested again this time i ended up in juvenile hall Mm. and uh so now i'm actually still had that other case that was still pending um got arrested again my dad hires this attorney i was given the opportunity of two years in california youth authority which is like juvenile prison yeah um, or 30 days in rehab and uh, of course i'm like let's do rehab right yeah right. No, <laughs> no hard choice there and uh and so it was also right at this time that my dad uh left bank of america he got a new job now down in southern california so i got out of juvenile hall they put me on a plane flew down to tustin in orange county and uh, was put in a 30-day treatment program um down here and as a juvenile how old were you what was you, you said you weren't even was, driving age i was 16 at this time yeah so i was First time in rehab, first time my introduction to the 12 step program, mm. um, 16, you know, yeah. um, and, and I'll tell you, honestly, what was crazy was that I completed this program. And of course I met all these people in, in the rehab that I, and this was the only people I knew. I mean, we'd moved again from Northern California to Southern California. And so I didn't know anybody else. Um, and so I, uh, uh, you know, met these people in rehab. We became good friends and wow, we all stayed clean. We all stayed sober, you know, oh. for, for, um, you know, six months, seven months afterwards, you know, we were going to 12 step meetings. Um, I didn't do anything at the 12 step meetings other than just go, and, <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, and, and we had a great time actually. Um, and, so I was going now to Mission Viejo High School, which is another, you know, a school. Um, after that semester, my mom wanted to put me into another private school. 
And so she moved me out of that school. And then I go to a private school on probation. Um, and I ended up making a decision at some point to go with this guy and go to Oregon. Now, again, I'm on probation. Um, we just hopped in his car and we drove to Oregon, went up to Eugene, Oregon. Um, we had very little money. We stayed in a homeless shelter. Um, we were eating foods from uh, churches where you could go to churches and they give you all yeah. these canned foods to eat. Yeah. And we found this place called Cougar Hot Springs. Mm. Um, that sounds fun. Yeah. Cougar Hot Springs. They had hot springs around the mountain. It was like a hippie and there was a hippie commune there. And, um, and so I, and I loved it, you know, and, uh, um, you know, we started smoking weed, um, you know, obviously with the hippies (laughs) and, uh, but I made a bad, I made an interesting decision on our way up, uh, to Oregon. We had stopped at these, uh, this, these people's house that I knew and they were old teachers that I had and they were young. So these were like young teachers that were, you know, maybe like 21 years old, they worked at that Christian high school. And so we had stopped in there just to say, Hey, they're like, what are you doing? Aren't you supposed to be in school? No, they're, they're on a break, you know, made up some story. Yeah. And well, once we headed to Oregon, that guy called my mom Hmm. and found out, you know, and I had told him, I said, I'll stop back, you know, here when I start heading back South. Um, And so we did the thing up there. We started heading south. Stopped back at their house. Um, and what kind of time of frame the, was that? Like, how long did you stay up there? Uh, we were there about a month. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And cool. so we show back up down at those teachers' house. And once we walked in, I felt like something was off, you mm-hmm. know. And but it, but I didn't really listen to it too much. And we were sitting in, we were talking to this guy. Well, one of the other ones were in the back and apparently he was calling the police. And so he called the police and I was, uh, next thing I know, I hear a knock at the door and I was like, I knew it, you know, immediately knew it. And he yeah. answered the door, asked for me. Of course, they took me into custody and they took me back to juvenile hall. Um, and this juvenile hall they had was kind of a freaky place. I mean, it was a like solitary confinement kind of stuff. You know, you're um, literally like in a dungeon. <laughs> you know, it's not too far from like San Quentin, you know, up in that vicinity. Yeah. And, um, and so I think I was there five days. And uh, the next thing I know, Orange County Sheriff's actually picked me up up there. Um, and so... Orange County sheriffs, they take me in. Then I had a very interesting ride south because you're talking, you know, it's about a seven hour drive, you know, from where I was at to Southern California. And being, I think I was maybe 17 at this time. Um, and so we're driving south and we stopped at like six or seven state prisons on the way down, picking up different people. And of course, I'm the only juvenile in there. And so they had me in like a cage in the front, right? And all the rest of them were in the back. And protect you from all those heathens. <laughs> yeah. So apparently they had all served their time, but they had another charge that was in like Orange County or something. So they were taken back down. Of course, I'm listening to all their stories. And, you know, I mean, yeah. some have been in prison for like 25 years and long time, you know. Um, and so then we ended up making it back down there. I go to court. They sentenced me to 60 days in juvenile hall. 
I served 30 of it. They, and then they put me on house arrest to go, to go, um, the rest of the 30. Um, I was a bad kid. I mean, I was a, I was one of those kids that I just didn't care about anything. Mm. Um, you know, and I went back to that school that I was at and I lasted about a week. I went home, got in a fight with my mom, told her to F off, cut the bracelet off, threw it at her, took off. <sighs> and, uh, went to my girlfriend's house in Fullerton. Um, which is my parents live in Southern Orange County, Fullerton's Northern Orange County and made, made it up there. Um, spent the night there. Um, and then I was leaving and I, I got out and I left and I was heading down to Denny's and I was like, Oh man, I forgot my jacket. So I turned around back, headed back over, um, and went back in literally right when I walked in the house, uh, cops pulled up right out front mm. and, um, and so I'm telling my girl, I'm like going, okay, here's what you got to do. You got to hold them, uh, you know, just kind of keep them there. I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do. Right. And so, you know, they come out of the door is Eric, Eric, you know, here. Um, and I had kind of hopped out the side window and I sat behind the bushes. And so the, and they saw my shoes, you know, they were like, you know, and the guy, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I always remember this too. He goes, he looks at me and he goes, because uh, I was getting ready to run. He goes, I've, I've always wanted to use this. He's holding a taser, you know? He's like, run, because I've always wanted to use this, you know? Mm. Of course, I'm like, no way, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. That's cool. So I laid down, it took me to cut. So I had to serve the other 30 days um, in juvenile hall. Um, and so, and that was my juvenile years, you know? I was, so I was arrested four times before I even turned 18. Um, had no goals, no dreams, no care for nothing. And, um, you know, I was more concerned with the friends, you know, and, um, fitting in and being a part of, and all that aspect of, uh, of growing up, you know, I totally can understand how you were talking about that disconnect and never really, you know, establishing a, um, what would feel like a community friendship thing where you were felt like you were part of, you know, uh, roots are important to me. And what I'm hearing there's a whole lot of that, uh, not happening. And then also what I find interesting too, is that, you know, it sounds like you really had everything at your disposal. You could have done, you know, you were laid a golden path, really, if you wanted it, uh, parents were good. They were supportive. They were, uh, uh, able to financially provide for whatever you needed. And yet still, cause I, you know, and I do believe there's some kind of uh, wiring in me when I was born that caused me to like, want to drift this direction. There's a compass pointing that just wouldn't allow me to go the straight and narrow. I had to continue to press, uh, boundaries and, and go around and flirt on the edge, knowing time after time that when I was doing things in my head, I'm thinking I probably shouldn't really be doing this. But that wasn't enough. Uh, I still would continue. I'd just go do it anyway. Yeah, yeah that intuition, you know, uh, yeah. I didn't listen to it. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the thing about recovery. I've regained it to a positive effect in my life. Like, no, I mean, and I know that sounds like a small thing, but seeing your name on the, in that email, I instantly knew, yes, I talked to this guy, you know, and that's just a little small thing, but I get these little signals all the time about like, uh, what to do, where to go. And, and I've, and I've listened to them today and they're really working out really well for me today. <laughs> uh, I didn't listen to them when I was a kid. Yeah. Not at all. 
or so, yeah, that was my that was my juvenile years. I mean, I I uh, and then once I hit eighteen, it was on, you know, um, and I hit uh, and actually it was a little before I turned eighteen. I think I ran away when I was uh, maybe a maybe a month before I turned eighteen. I um, was the month thing up in Oregon. Was that a runaway? Did anybody know where you were going? No, nobody knew. So it would have been a classified as far as your parents went. You ran away. Yeah, no, that will no, absolutely. That at that time, I mean, I was, um, I think I had just turned 17 at that yeah. time. Yeah, uh, I just was uh, like, you know, somebody ought to be looking for you. And, you know, most times 17 year old kids don't get to take a month long hiatus and just go <laughs> do what you want to do. You're not supposed to. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Yeah. And so, and then I, my life completely went an interest, very interesting direction at that point. Um, because that experience I had in Oregon, I just, I, you know, I loved the, the vibe of that, that counterculture hippie scenario. Um, and so in, when I, about a month before I turned 18, the Grateful Dead came mm -hmm. into town um, in Vegas. And so I, uh, my friend and I, we hopped in, hopped in a car. I, and would be about mid eighties. No, no, no. This was the early nineties, early nineties. Okay. Um, and so we, yeah, we hopped in, in a car, went to, uh, Vegas and spent the weekend in Vegas. Um, and you know, that scene for me, um, especially at that time, which is unbelievable. I mean, I, the way that I connected with people, um, I mean, the, the people of that scene were something that were very unique, you know, you never went hungry. Um, you know, people give you tickets for the shows, um, you know, uh, cause we didn't have much money, you know, basically you get weed, you get LSD. I mean, it's like, nobody was really out for money, you know? Um, I mean, just the tickets to the Grateful Dead were 20 bucks. I mean, if you had, even if you had the money, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, I, actually I think the scalpers sold them for like 30 bucks, mm. <laughs> you know, and that was Jerry, always Jerry saying was like, you know, he wanted people to be able to come in. I mean, he, yep. you know, I right. mean, they, be, they became, you know, obviously one of the wealthiest bands of all time, um, especially up to that point. But, you know, so we, but not by being greedy. <laughs> oh, they, they were just the opposite just the opposite yeah completely different business model than uh than anybody would seen before absolutely i mean you know if you get if you get a band that just just loves to do it to play the music that's when you get great bands you yeah. know yeah um, and so but that scene became a big part of my life for a while i can imagine Every time they hit the West Coast from like 91 up until when Jerry died in 95, um, I was off and running, you know. Um, and so I did I did that. Um, and then I found my drug of choice. And that was methamphetamine. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, and I always think about it with, you know, and, you know, like, with what I do today, right? I'm a teacher. I teach at a school uh, for people that are working to become substance abuse counselors. Yeah. Um, and, 
you know, I have this podcast that I do. Um, and, and I'm also really trying to do a lot of work with looking at our educational system. You know, how do we teach people about drugs? You know, back in the day, it was like Nancy Reagan's motto, just say no. Right. Yeah. And that's a crazy motto because it really fails to take into account the mind's desire to understand, you know, um, you know, the whole like fear tactic, you know, you have cops that go into the schools and try to scare kids, you know, and, you know, if you, I've always thought this, if you go into a school and you, you tell kids drugs are bad, they're horrible, but you've got a group of them that have done it. They're like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Cause at that, at that age, they haven't had bad things happen. Most Not of yet. them are like, this makes me feel great. You're crazy. You know, yep. we just uh, laughed at them. Those of us that were doing it and just laughed at them. And enough, another little dynamic is, you know, when you tell me no, I'm going to, I'm going to do the opposite for some reason. I'm going to yeah. find out why you're telling me that's not good for me. You said, don't go there. Well, I'm going to be looking around figuring my first chance to go there. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the thing on, you know, with, um, and that was the thing with meth, you know, for me was, you know, I, you know, being a kind of a depressed individual, I do meth and it's like, I feel great. I right. got energy. I got focus. Life's on. I mean, it's like, and I, and I always remember thinking like, why is everybody not doing this? Yeah. yeah. You know, and it, there was no downside that I saw at that point. Um, and, but one thing did happen, but I didn't really think about it in that sense, but any values or morals that I had were gone, hmm. you know? Um, and that's the one thing that, and I didn't really see it at that point. I mean, I, and I, I mean, I did, I really didn't have a lot of care for the world, but the little bit that I did have, that was gone, you know? Um, and I do believe though, the Grateful Dead played a big part in helping to save my life at certain points. And I know that's kind of a crazy mentality because when the dead came to town, I was off and running and I'd get off the meth. Um, and I'd get, you know, I'd be doing LSD and I'd be doing mushrooms. I'd yeah, be doing yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it did take me away from that meth. Wow. Um, huh. during those periods of time. Um, and, but in 91 and this is, you know, 91 after that, those first bits of shows, um, I ended up moving to Oregon or no, I'm sorry, I ended up moving to Northern California, Chico. My brother went to Chico State University, my older brother, the one that I didn't get along with. Um, and uh, my mom kind of like pushed this whole thing about, look, why don't you go to school, go to college, do something, right? And so I moved to Northern California and to Chico, um, which became another substance abuse problem for me. And that was alcohol because um, I have, have Chico State at that point was the number two party school in the country. And I've never seen anything like that. I mean, you got an entire town. You could go to any apartment complex, any of the night of the week, and there'd be keg parties, people, mm. you know, and I, that's what I did. I mean, I, and I'd literally be drinking every night, um, just massive amounts of alcohol, just drunk, you know, and uh, smoking a lot of weed. And I was kind of the, I joined, I started at the community college. Of course, I didn't have the grades to get to Chico State. And luckily I had graduated college, which was America or high school, high school. which was 
Yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah. <laughs> That's the same thing I said. You know, somehow I graduated high school. I have no idea how. Barely. Yep. And so uh, yeah, I, I uh, went to what's called Butte Community College, which was the county, um, and I signed up for five classes. After about a month, I was down to one, um, which was a four o'clock in the afternoon class. So it was a little easier to make it to. Yeah. Um, and it's the only class I made. I finished. Um, and my story also includes a lot of head injuries. Hmm. And so I had had, um, um, we got really drunk one night. Um, we kind of did the whole, you know, is anybody sober enough to drive? You know, and I was just smashed drunk and this girl was with us and she's like, oh yeah, no, I can drive. No problem. So she drove my car and we drove to uh, Taco Bell and in Chico, their Taco Bell doesn't have a drive through. It has a walkthrough. And so she was so drunk that she thought she was going through a drive through and sort of pulled up to like pulling in. Some guy slams his hand on my van. And he's like, you know, you know, what are you guys doing? You know? And so of course I get out just drunk, you know, just screaming and yelling cussing all this stuff you know um and somebody taps me on my shoulder i turn around i just get clocked right here and i literally just fell right onto my head i mean literally and i had a contusion that stuck out about two inches um and you know everybody's like don't go to sleep of course i never went to the doctor um and i went home drank more and passed out and but i woke up so you know (laughs) And, uh, and just ironically enough, it was my parents flew to Chico for family photos that next day. Ooh. Yeah. Well, you had a big uh, goose egg on your head. I did. And they've kind of angled me in a direction to where. You oh, did they? Much. Yeah. <laughs> you can still see the photo and it's kind of, you can still see a little bit of a, it looks like an alien head kind of thing. <laughs> but this actually plays heavily into a future story. Um, and so I ended up after there, I went back to Southern California, um, and got back on meth, um, did that for a period of time, dead shows back up off and running and trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life, you know, and I I literally thought that. And so I decided to join the Navy. Um, (laughs) and so I joined the Navy, um, but they wouldn't let me uh, join active duty because of my past. And, um, and so I joined the reserves, went to Great Lakes, Illinois, went to boot camp, graduated boot camp, went to a school, my a school in Port Wyneme, California. And after that, I was supposed to do weekends. So go back home, and me and friend, my friends took off, went back up to Oregon, Cougar Hot Springs. We were gone, gone like six weeks, um, completely missed my weekend thing. Um, you know, showed back up, went back to, to Southern California, me and some friends got an apartment. And we had met this couple also that were up there and they'd never been to California. So they traveled south with us. And so we had all four of us had gotten an apartment. It was, a, you know, this guy, this girl, me and, and a good friend of mine. And after um, maybe about three weeks, I was sitting 
back on meth and I was sitting on my couch and I remember a friend of mine goes, you know, Hey, I want you to, let's do a big bong hits. We'll stand up real quick. And so I grabbed the bong and that's the last thing I remember. And the next thing I know I'm laying on the floor and uh, paramedics are above me. Um, and I had apparently had a grand mal seizure lasted mm-hmm. like 10 minutes. Um, and I had apparently skinned the whole side of my face. I dragged my head up the wall. Uh, my friend like tries to stick his thumb in my mouth. Like I was swallowing my tongue. I almost bite it off. He takes a spoon, shoves it into my throat. And uh, so when I kind of came to one of the things that hurt was my head and my throat. <laughs> <laughs> so they take me to the hospital and they diagnosed me as having what's called an AVM, which is an arterial vesicular malformation, which is a lesion in your brain. And so they wanted to do brain surgery. Um, and the guys explained to me that, you know, every year that passes by, I'm going to have a 5% higher chance of having an aneurysm as it becomes a weakened blood vessel. Um, I told him about the, the weed and I was like, you know, just smoking weed. He's like, weed's not going to cause it, but don't do stimulants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Choice. Right. And so apparently this thing was actually caused by that incident in Chico. Hmm. So when I hit my head and that contusion, it created some kind of, uh, lesion there in my brain. Um, and of course I'm like, you know what? I don't know. The doctor's crazy. I'm not having brain surgery. Um, so I decided to leave and get back on meth. <laughs> yep. Exactly what he said he to don't right. do, but yep. I'm like, Oh, yep. this doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, I'm the expert, I guess, you know? <laughs> yeah. I totally relate to that. Yeah. They can't be, uh, well, it kind of goes into that. Don't do this thing again. And then, uh, and you know, uh, somebody, somebody talked about this thing, like a, more like a parasite or a computer virus where it hijacks our operating system, you know, and we're not really in control anymore, you know? And then once that, once that drug of choice and that desire to have it, uh, has its claws in you, you really don't have any choice, but to do what you did. It, it's winning. It's, it's got you and nobody could make any sense to you any other way. No. You'd have an argument. Yeah. And so, yeah, then I, um, um, got back on meth. We had a dealer, the girlfriend of the guy that we had met in Oregon started, um, going with me a lot to the dealer's house and her boyfriend started to become convinced that she's sleeping with her dealer. Um, but in reality, I was actually sleeping with her. (laughs) He was somewhat right, but not all the way. She was cheating, but it wasn't on him. And, uh, so there was some incident that happened where um, that guy shows up at our place and the boyfriend goes to fight this guy. Um, and he literally goes to swing. The guy like turns to the side, grabs his head and like slides his head along the, you know, those uh, stucco walls, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, so long story short with that, the girl that I was sleeping with, I thought the, sleeping with the uh um the, the dealer, dealer. <laughs> she uh she decides to go back to maryland that's where she was actually from and so they had um so she, her mom buys her a flight she leaves we stayed in touch and um i decided that i needed to get off meth and so um she um says hey why don't you come out here so 
I hop on a plane and then I moved to Maryland. Geographical uh, cures. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was absolutely convinced that this was going to work except for the fact that I didn't really think about the fact that they had a lot of drugs out there. They didn't have meth though. Oh yeah. Yeah. But they had heroin, of course, uh, a lot of cracks out in Maryland hmm. uh, and uh, ecstasy. And so that whole scene. It was uh, years down the road before I made the connection to that. What I was doing at one point in my life, we were all calling crank. And then the meth thing came around, you know, and, and then I like was putting two and two together going, hold on. Uh, that's what I was doing. By the time they uh, started calling it meth around my neighborhood, uh, uh, I had not, I wasn't doing too much of it by then, but I did have a big, uh, I had a big phase where I'd met some people who had it, uh, motorcycle people who had uh, lots of it. And, uh, and we called it crank. And the first time I ever did it, I thought I was doing cocaine. I thought I was sniffing a line of cocaine. Somebody grabbed me and said, Hey, you want to do a line? And I said, yes. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many minutes it was, you know, the timelines don't work out, but, uh, I was thinking this does not feel like any cocaine I've ever had <laughs> uh, oh. It's a little bit different. And the next day I was like, what was that? You know, oh, that was crank. You didn't know. No, I didn't know. I just did it. Yeah. Yeah. Back in that time, you know, it was, uh, crank was more, we kind of called it peanut butter. Mm. Uh, it was like a, you know, and it was actually cut with this stuff called P2P, which is purple two, purple ethanine or something like that, which is like a, a, um, industrial cleanser. And that was sort of what it was cut with. That stuff was so powerful. It smelled horrifically horrible. Yeah. Um, you could do a line to keep you up for like 18 hours. Yeah. That's exactly what happened that night. And I was like, you know, cause most of the time in just a little while, I'm going to want some more Coke, <laughs> you know, it ain't going to take a lot long. You'll know, be good for a little while, but that night, no, I didn't need any more all night long. Yep. Yeah. And so that was, um, how old a guy yeah. are you time frame wise? Like when we were What's growing that? up, how old are you? Uh, 40, 47. Okay. I'm 50. I'll, I'll be 52 this year. So it's, it's funny. We're about like the same. Yeah. 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 I had to think about <laughs> it. You, get older, you stop caring less, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that puts us in the time frame about, you know, in the world doing this stuff at about the same ages and stuff. Yeah. So, but yeah, I was in Maryland and, um, we ended up, uh, living at this hotel. I got a job at this diner down. And so it was free rent where we were staying um at this hotel and so and it's at this point in time i started doing heroin i started doing um i hated heroin you know but i it was available um and we started doing a lot of ecstasy in the and and so of course ecstasy brings a lot of sex um and ecstasy with a lot of sex brings pregnancy um <laughs> and so the girl i was with ended up getting pregnant um and then she was like, you know what? I, I don't want to, to uh, be on drugs or doing this stuff. So I want to go back to California. Right. Um, so we go back to California. Um, I hooked back up with that dealer. And of course, back on back on meth. She was actually amazingly enough. She didn't do any drugs her own whole pregnancy. It's interesting. Uh, yeah. I, I see that, you know, sometimes it happens that way. And sometimes it doesn't, uh, um, gal I was married to for a long time. We met doing all that, you know, and then whenever she got to be where kids were on her mind, man, she just set everything down just one day, yep. you know, just said, oh, I'm wanting to have babies and yep. and just stopped. Yep. Never yeah. was able to do that. What's that? Never was able to do that. <laughs> no. No. And so, yeah, so she, uh, and of course I was no help in the scenario. I mean, I'm just 
you know, just you can stop if you want to. I, you know, I'll keep on my path. No, and uh, just spun out of my mind, you know. Um, and then she reaches a point where she's like, okay, I'm going back to Maryland, right? So in '95, we ended up moving back to Maryland. We moved to this small little town called um, uh, Woodstock, Maryland. Hmm. As uh, uh, we lived in a trailer out there, and that's where my son was born. So, oh. and this is actually my second kid. And actually, when I was 17, I kind of let that whole story out. I had a, uh, I had a daughter um, that, uh, and I was a horrible father. I was completely non-existent, um, and uh, and so. 95, I had a kid. So now I had a kid on each end of the country um, and uh, got a job with this paint company. I tried to be responsible, tried to do the right thing. Just not completely. I smoking weed and drinking. You know, that was my, whole, okay, I'm just going to drink and smoke weed. Um, I want to be successful. I want to be happy, but I don't want to be clean. You know, I want to find a way that I can do that. Yeah. And so um, that worked for a while, 98. Um, uh, me and the girls separated and I decided to go back to California. Um, went back to California and back on math, you know? Um, and so 99, I, uh, I was in, uh, my apartment, um, uh, worked at Kinko's graveyard, great job for a tweaker. Um, <laughs> come home one night and, uh, or one morning, um and we were, i was sitting on the couch friends of mine left they uh they were gone about 10 minutes next thing i know there's a loud bang at the door orange county sheriff's open the door i'm gonna bust your door down um and so they ended up coming in um this girl had basically said that she was on she was basically on probation um that we were hanging out with um she showed up at her house uh, probation was there and she decided to roll over on somebody to get, you know, lesser of a deal. Um, and so they, they, she basically told them though, that we were like selling massive guns and we were huge dealers and we weren't at that time. Um, and so I didn't have a weapon in the house and, um, I had a little bit of meth on me. Um, but they were expecting to find something huge. And so, yeah. uh, but we did end up getting arrested for possessions. I did have some. Um, and, uh, and then I was given an opportunity to do this, what they call PC 1000, which is um, if you do a program, you can actually, you, you plead guilty. It was felony for possession at that time. Uh, you plead guilty, you complete a program, you stay out of, out of trouble for a year, they'll drop the charge. And so I literally went into court. Um, I looked at the judge. The judge said, um, you know, you're eligible for PC-1000. And I literally looked at her and I said, you know what? If you give me PC-1000, you might as well lock me up now. I can't get off, I can't get off this shit. Um, and so she allowed me to go to a rehab um, in lieu of that. And so I ended up going to treatment again. Um, and uh so you know kind of back into that whole scene for a little bit um when i was getting but here's the thing about that too is that i smoked weed during the inpatient and i drank through the entire five month uh outpatient program that i was supposed to do never got caught got away mm. with it wow got away with it right right okay <laughs> that whole mentality of i'm gonna get away with this you know 
Yeah. Um, yeah. You really never get away with anything. No. Or not not in the long haul. Not in the long haul. Not in a bit. And so I complete that program. My counselor looks at me and goes, You did great. You did fantastic. Good job. You're gonna make it. Right. And he says, you know, they knew nothing otherwise. Um, and I decided to go back to Maryland um because I needed to stay out of trouble in California um to get that dropped. Um so I go back to Maryland. We're now at like 1999, um, or actually now we're at 2000. Um, and so we I go back to Maryland. I stayed for a period of time that didn't pan out very well, came back to California. And this is where things get really crazy. Um, one of the things that I do when I was basically saying when I'm on meth, my values, my morals, everything goes away. The person that I am, um, and I, I correlate this in my book, right? Pain, failure, and misery are the stepping stones to success. And the first part of my book is pain, failure, and misery, which is my story. And then we go a step into the unknown and the stepping stones to success. And, and so I correlate me with like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, literally. I mean, I am, you put that potion in me, that substance in me. Um, the only exception between Dr. Hyde is I don't murder people. Um, that's the one thing. I, and I don't rape people. Those were the two things I don't do, right? Everything else is, is open, right? Um, and I will, um, I basically um, commit residential burglaries. Um, I need to maintain my supply, uh, credit card, credit card fraud, check fraud, um, everything that I can basically think to do, selling it um, to make sure that I have my supply. That's it everything's on. I live in motel rooms. Um, and, uh, and that's typically what happened. I'd commit an average of about 10 residential burglaries a night. Mm. Um, it was not only, you know, I kind of correlate this too. I think my drug of choice was adrenaline. Um, because that a whole mixture of the adrenaline of meth and the adrenaline of breaking into houses. Um, and, uh, while people are home, you know, um, and I have that in common also, <laughs> you know, and the only thing luckily, right. That didn't happen was, um, you know, uh, I never got caught by anybody. I was, I was literally able to get into houses, steal stuff, get out. Nobody saw me. Um, and, uh, you know, and so, and it, and it was really, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, I had one, one where I, I broke into this house, I literally, this, their garage door was open and I walk in and I kind of open the door and I hear this guy snoring and it's like a townhome. And so I crept in, I walked upstairs. I could see the wife and, and the husband sleeping. And I see this lady's purse right next to her head. And so I walked over, grabbed the purse and I left. And I'm going through the purse. It was like maybe hundred bucks cash in it. And there was credit cards. And so I took, I took a credit card, left the cash. I just wanted, you know, get a lot more off of credit cards sometimes than you can off of cash, right? Took the credit card. And then I took the purse back, went back there, set it right next to her head and left, you know? Um, Insane. And it was unbelievably like, I mean, I had, and it's all such so foggy with me. I mean, I, I was, uh, I was, I was slamming it. That was, you know, once I got to that place, life got really, really crazy. 
uh, stick and needle in my arm. And I just, that was another addiction. Just loved it. You know, um, I started probably slamming over an eight ball a day. Um, and just, it was such a part of me, you know? Um, and one night, this was 2001. Um, there was one night that I had, um, uh, broken into a place that's similar to a Home Depot. Um, uh, it's not, it wasn't Home Depot, but it had to sit, it's a Home Depot now, but it was another <laughs> company that was, you know, garden area, huge inside. And so, yeah. um, I had bolt cutters and I went in to the, um, uh, side, I cut the, cut the bolts, I'd get into the back. Um, and I found this, they had a little shack there that was full of boxes of paperwork. And when I started looking at it, it had driver's license ID, you know, I had driver's license number, checking account numbers. I mean, the whole gamut of information that I needed to steal information, you know, to be able to become somebody else. Right. Um, and so I would, I would, uh, so I took a bunch of this stuff and I was making fake IDs. I actually made them pretty good. They were, you know, for California. Um, and so I, I made, I made these IDs, um, I uh, was able, you know, making checks and their names. I was, uh, uh, at some point in time later, I got one of those uh, credit card punchers. So I was able to go to, you go to 7-Eleven, I'd get a card that, you know, had, it didn't have the punched in numbers, but it had the, the numbers you could clean off, right? Um, and so I just needed a card. And so I would clean off the numbers. I had a credit card reader writer. I had, um, um, credit card punching machine. So I could literally make credit cards, um, um, punch in the name of somebody. And, uh, and so I got heavily into that, um, you know, and I, and so that similar to Home Depot experience, um, I did repeatedly well, and I did it one too many times one night. And so um, I go back in there, cut it, and I get, I go, you know, to the shack, and all of a sudden I see on the roof um, this flashlight. Hear the guy yell, "Orange County Sheriff's freeze!" Mm. Freezing did not seem right, so I ran around the side, and of course, you know, if you got one sheriff, you're gonna have a bunch more. Um, once I got out the side, I, I there was probably like ten sheriffs out there, um, guns on me. I laid down. Um, and got arrested. Um, I was the only one. Uh, my girlfriend was in the uh, in a hotel room that we rented. Um, and this actually brings an interesting story too. She was when I met this girl. She was seven months pregnant. She was doing tons of math, and that goes back to wasn't my kid, but that goes back to there are a lot of people that do drugs on math, you know, and, and uh, you know that are pregnant. Yeah, yeah, they do. And so. Um, so she was at the hotel room and I had, um, got arrested. And so she ended up locating me, posted my bail. Mm. Uh, they set a court date 30 days later. I go to court. DA didn't file my case to drop the charges to exonerate my bail. And so they have three years. Of course they can refile on me. Um, literally the next day after this, um, this girl had called me, my, my girlfriend and I were like down San Diego. And this girl called me and wanted to buy some meth. And so she said, hey, I'll be at this. Uh, so we kind of picked a spot we were going to be and she was going to be at. And they said, all right, I'm driving north. I'll meet you up there. I drive up there, get off the freeway, go to her. I literally 
walk up to her, hand her the dope. She gives me money. I get in the car and I take off. And so I get up to the freeway and all of a sudden I got a, uh, this was an Irvine, Irvine police officer pulls right behind me. I got like a ounce of meth, like sitting right on my side, like right on my, you know, and this time my girlfriend was with me. And so this cop, uh, once the light turned green, I was getting on, throws his lights on, pulls me over, um, you know, radio's over, get off to the next exit. I got literally, my car is the biggest bust in the world. Um, he asked me to get out, do a sobriety check. I said, I don't drink. I haven't drank in like nine months. He goes, well, you'd kind of pass the line. And so um, I get out. Long story short, he ends up, you know, getting away, gets in my car. Um, they find tons of meth, scales, baggies. Um, they ended up finding that ounce of meth that I had um, and arrested both of us, put us in jail. We had $25,000 bails each. Um, I got arrested on a Thursday. Sunday rolled around when I finally woke up. You know, I slept from like Thursday to Sunday <laughs> once I got in there. And I uh, woke up Sunday and I was thinking about my girlfriend and I called a friend of mine and said, hey, um, and he answered luckily, hey, can you pull up money to post your bail and get her out? And so I didn't know if it happened, but Monday, Monday they took me to court and it was basically a dry run. They took me there, sat there all day. They took me back. They got 72 hours to arraign you and they didn't. So that night they just called my name, let me go. Um, and so I get out. My girlfriend went to court 30 days later because he did post her bail. DA didn't file on her case, dropped charges, exonerated her bail. Um, and so long story short on this, and I'm kind of going long on this, but <laughs> it's okay. But, but we, uh, uh, about maybe a month after this, um, we were driving down the toll road to this hotel that we were staying at. We pull into the parking lot. Um, and all of a sudden I got about seven unmarked cars that blocked us in. Um, next thing I looked to the left, got a gun at my head. Um, and, uh, it was the Orange County Sheriff's Narcotics Task Force. Uh, apparently they'd been following us and, and busted somebody that would, you know, had, um, bought from us and they were trying to get information to arrest us. Only found a little dope on me, found a little dope on her took us to jail um, and called called the bail bondsman that um, the other guy had used before and my girlfriend had used before for me. Um, and he posted both our bails with nothing down. We went to court 30 days later. The DA didn't file, didn't file in that case, dropped the charge and exonerated the bail. Golly. Yeah. And so, so um, and at this point in time, my girlfriend just got freaked out. She's like, take me to rehab. So I took her to a detox, left her there. Um, and I couldn't do it. I just kept running. Um, I, I hired an attorney. He was trying to convince me to go to jail and stay in jail because all I'm doing is stacking up stuff. Um, and, uh, and eventually I ran on it all. Um, and so it was January, January 3rd, 2002. Um, I was living in this motel room and, Woke up, fell asleep, you know, woke up, got high. And uh, the next thing I know, there's a key at the door, door slams open. And it was that same task force that um, they were try trying to find me um, because now they could arrest me on this warrant that I had because I had 
took off. They eventually filed on two of those cases. Um, and so I kind of ran on it all. Um, and so it was at this point in time that I was like, you know what, I'm done. I'm convinced this is it. I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, and I, you know, told the deputy that took me to jail. I was telling him that I'm like, this is it. I'm done. And so I go in um, to jail and I lasted about five days and those cravings hit so bad. I tried to call my dad. Hey dad, um, you know, is there a way you can give me a thousand bucks? Cause that's what my, my bail bondsman needed just to, you know, be able to do something again. Uh, my dad says, you know what? I'm glad you're there. At least I know you're staying. And um, I'm uh, almost six, four, weighed 130 pounds. Oh, and uh, I hardly ate at all, um, you know, and all I'm doing is just running around. I mean, literally, I was skin and bones just socked up, you know, um, and I was looking at 15 years in prison. And so this was the point in time where I was like, you know what, this is it. I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I kind of faded in and out of that. You know, just the cravings. I mean, it just hit me so, they hit me so bad. Um, and then, of course, to compound that, I couldn't smoke either cigarettes. So now I'm detoxing with cigarettes. And, <laughs> and so, um, so it was after a month, I, uh, uh, they kept, I had court cases in different courthouses. Um, they kind of kept bouncing me around. And finally, my attorney brings them together in Central Court, Santa Ana. Um, and they wanted originally the DA wanted to give me seven years. Um, my attorney was convinced that he'd be able to get it to three years. And so, um, I told him, I was like, you know what, let's do it. I'm ready to sign. I, you know, county jails, you can't go outside anywhere. You can't, I mean, you're literally just, it's literally like you're in a dungeon, you know? Yep. And, uh, so I, I, um, I said, yeah, this is fine. Send me, get me up to a prison somewhere I can at least see the outside. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, and so I went there and I was ready to sign on it. My my uh, my attorney says, you know what? Um, let me go talk to him one more time. And uh, goes and talks to DA. Comes back and just got this huge smile on his face. He ended up getting me nine months in county, um, six months in a in a residential treatment program. I had to do a DUI school because they filed on that um, in three years probation. That was it. Wow. Um, talk about a God thing, right? Yeah, no doubt. And you're doing nothing. You know, I mean, you're not doing nothing really to help yourself. It's this is happening for you. Yep. And so this was 2002 when this happened. Um, and uh, so I got out, um, did my time, got out. I'd done an in-custody treatment program they had. Um and uh, I tried to really invest into the 12-step program. Um, you know, I, I, I'd always struggled with the 12-step program in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the faith part was a big thing that yep. I struggled with. Um, you know, the, the God idea. I mean, I was God, right? So, <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah. in my mind, you know, it's like, you know, I make all the calls, all the decisions, you know. And so, um, and I really tried to change that. I really tried to invest in that. When I was in custody, I, um, it was something that popped in my head. I was thinking like, okay, how am I going to do this? Well, you know, I've had a lot of years of experience in the 12-step program. Um, 
you know, I mean, I could recite chapter three, chapter five by heart, you know, you hear them in meetings and you know, yeah, over and, yeah. over and over, knew all the steps, you know, knew what they were about, never did them, but, you know, I knew them. Um, and when I was in jail, I asked to see if I could meet with a pastor and they didn't have a pastor, but they had a priest. I actually talk about this in my book a little, and I go in and I meet with this priest and and I asked, I, I told him, I said, you know, why can't I believe in God? You know, why can't I look at all these people out here that have this like faith in something that, you know, you can't touch, taste, smell, hear, or feel, right? And, you know, I always thought it was just absurd. And so I, and I told him, I said, look, I said, I, I can't believe, I don't understand why I can't believe in God, you know? Why can't he, he looks and he goes, maybe you're asking the wrong question. You know, and I was like, what's the right question? You know, he looks at me and he goes, exactly. I'm thinking like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Right. And so, you know, and I started getting irritated with him. You know, I'm just like, tell me what is the right question? You know, um, and uh, and so he goes, look, he's like, why don't you pray with me? He's like, let's do a little prayer. And I said, all right, you know, he's like, just, just think, you know, repeat what I'm saying. Right. And so we go into this prayer and it's, he goes, he goes, um, dear Lord, why can't I believe in you? If you are there, please help me find you. Right. And so, and I said that, right. And, uh, and I was thinking like, and I, you know, initially I'm thinking like, this is crazy, you know, yeah. but, you know, I'm like, yes, whatever. Yep. But I said, all right, well, thanks man for the, you know, whatever you did, you know, I don't <laughs> Thanks <laughs> I don't for know. your time. And so, uh, so the mod, and this is where things do get interesting for me because the mod that I was in was um, a really crappy mod. It was literally like fight after fight after fight. I try to sleep, you know, when I was coming off meth. And there were so many times I'd wake up and the deputies were shooting tear gas and it was like an eight, you know, the 80 man mod. Right. And, um, I mean, it was brutal. Right. So that day, and I thought about this later, like that day that I met with, with this guy, right. I go back and, and, um, and so, and I back in the mod and that evening they called my name and they said, here, we're going to move you to a different mod. Right. And they brought me to a worker's tank. Hmm. And so um, I was like, okay, cool. So I got, and the, and the job I got was in the library, right? Which I was thinking like, oh, this is kind of cool, right? So so then I was able to get, so I got in the library. And of course, I had all these books, right, that I could choose from. Of course, you get 12-step books. And, you know, the, um, you know, they had the NA book, the, you know, all of them. So, and so I got, I got the Alcoholics Anonymous book. I'd never, never really read it. Again, I can recite chapter three and five, but you know, <laughs> stuff you see, you know, but I never read the other parts of it, you know. And so I got that. And then, um, so that had happened. Um, and then in this mod, there was also a prayer group, right? <laughs> and so there was a whole group of guys that used to just sit and pray, you know, at times. And so um, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to try this. I got into this, you know. Um, and, uh, and then I heard about this in-custody treatment program that they have that was at a different 
uh, one of the different jails. So they have the main jail in Santa Ana, and then they have uh, this program, uh, this jail called um, Theo Lacey, which is over in the city of Orange, which are both maximum security jails, right? Um, and they weren't going to move me out of that. They have another one called the farm, but it's like a minimum security kind of, you know, work out in the field <laughs> stuff, right? Yeah. And so, um, so I put in a request to get into this, right? Well, in back in 94, I had a, that grand mal seizure that I had, right? And in 98, I also had a grand mal seizure, but I was driving at that time, right? Mm -hmm. I used to be driving 70 mile an hour down the freeway when I had a grand mal seizure and hit both sides of the freeway. Um, and, uh, and so I was on anti-seizure meds. And so um, they come back with this, I'm sorry, you can't go get into this program because you're on um, um, medications. I don't have doctors over at the LAC. And so I was on the phone with my dad. And I was telling my dad that, um, you know, yeah, I'm not going to be able to get in this program. And, uh, but I said, I go, you know, it's, it's no big deal. I'll figure everything out when I get out. Because this program that they have is that if you, you once you get sentenced, you can do the time in the program. When you get out, there's a six-month aftercare that's free, right? And it's all included in this in a rehab facility, uh, which I was sentenced in order to do. And I was saying, like, shit, that'd be great because if it's free, I still got to do a six-month program. Yeah. And so I got denied, right? And so, um, so apparently the day after I talked to my dad, he, uh, he joined this small group at his church, right? And he'd never, um, and he didn't really know the people that were in it. It was my parents and there was like three other couples. And so my dad, I guess, was sharing what I was, what was happening, you know, over at the jail. And, and after their meeting, one of the guys goes up to my dad and he goes, let me see what I can do. Right. Well, he comes to find out that this guy, his name's Jerry Kranz. Jerry Kranz used to be the undersheriff in Orange County. And he was retired at the time, but he still trained every. He was like the big guy, you know, with the sheriff. Yeah. Um, and so I talked to my dad that afternoon, you know, and he was telling me, he goes, yeah, I met this guy, Jerry Kranz. And within like two hours after getting off the phone with my dad, they moved me over to Lacey and put me in that program. And, uh, you know, and you start thinking like, is this coincidence? Yep. Or is there something bigger than this? You right. Know? Yep. And, um, and then, uh, I, so I was in the program, but there was a really bad thing that happened again, going back to head injuries. But when I, um, after being in that program a month, um, I was on a top bunk and I went to sleep. Um, that, and I, when I came to, I was, I had the most horrific, I literally like fall asleep in the jail. I come to. I'm shackled to a, like chained to a bed as they're rolling me down this uh, hallway at the jail next at the uh, hospital, right? And um, my head, my head freaking hurts so bad. And I remember just kind of going in and out of consciousness. I'm trying to grab my head, but of course I can't reach it because I'm like <laughs> chained to the thing, right? And so apparently I had a seizure. I rolled off and I landed here. I cracked my skull. Ooh. And so I spent uh, about three days in there. They put me back at the main jail. Um, and I, of course, I'm thinking like, there's no way I'm making it back there. And uh, after two weeks, after I got cleared, they sent me back over there, got mm -hmm. back into it. Um, and 
Told you to stay on the bottom bunk. <laughs> yes, heard that I'd be on the bottom bunk, and so I uh, completed that, got out, and I got into that program. Um, and uh, and that's when life got very interesting because that's when I really decided that you know what I'm going to do this. I'm going to really make this happen. Um, and so I um, decided to go to school um, to become a substance abuse counselor. Um, I became very, very busy because I was actually in rehab, actually got a job full time and I started going to school. Um, and so I was very, very busy. (laughs) Um, and I started working at a residential facility as a live-in house manager, which was the worst job ever. Um, I got so burnt out so quick, but the owner ended up, um, changing things, um, I started working for uh, that facility and then I uh, got a job at another place, sort of moved up, um, completed my schooling. I kind of moved a little quicker on this, completed my schooling um, and uh, uh, actually stayed on in college, got my associates. um, And then I was planning to transfer to Cal State Fullerton. But um, in 2005, I got certified, 2006, I got certified. Um, I became the program director of a facility in Newport Beach, um, and then I ended up opening up a program in 2009, um, and, um, uh, and I focused on alternative sentencing. That was my big passion, um, was uh, working with, you know, people that, um, you know, were kind of going through the criminal justice system. Yeah, as a result of their addictions and alcoholism and that, and it's not really that they're a criminal, they're just... Uh, so many things come hand in hand in that, you know, just, uh, yep. that, you know, in my opinion, most of the time you got to treat that, you know, or else you're not going to, uh, you know, the person's not going to change. It's the root is, is the addiction, yep. not the crime. Yep. This is where I always say, and this is where I kind of go with the, you know, no matter where you've been or what you've done, you can do anything you want if you're willing to fight for it. And, um, and that experience I had when I opened that program was exactly that, because for you to really get into being, doing that service, right? You have to be able to get clearance to get into the jails. Well, how's a six time convicted felon gonna do that, right? Um, you have to get in and actually develop relationships with district attorneys, judges, right? Um, how's a six time convicted felon gonna do that? And, um, and so, and I didn't know, trust me, I had no idea how I was going to do it, but I was like, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to figure this out. Um, and so we ended up having a grand opening. I invited the, we were in Anaheim. So I actually invited the um, chief of police of Anaheim. Um, I invited representatives from the Orange County Sheriff's Department. I had no idea if anybody was going to come. I invited judges, I invited DAs, I invited different people, therapists and other, you know, people. Well, we ended up having not the chief of police, but the assistant chief of police of Anaheim showed up, had representatives from the sheriff's department that showed up, um, didn't have any judges, right? Um, didn't have any, you know, we had a couple of private attorneys that came. Um, and so I met with the assistant chief of police um, and I was thinking like, you know what, this would really be a cool opportunity if I could get clearance to go into the city jail of Anaheim, because Anaheim actually does video court, 
So when you get arraigned or when you get arrested in Anaheim, somebody's getting speaking of being arrested they have a fully operational jail so you actually can stay in there and they do all their arraignments over video court so you actually get shipped over to county until your arraignment then they could may ship you over there if that if you're going to stay in custody but i always thought that you know what maybe we could reach some people here um because some of them are going to post bail and some of them will get or'd and they won't really have that experience so that's what i was talking to him about uh met with the people from the sheriff's department and uh i was telling them what i was trying to do hey is there any way i can get clearance um you know to get in to be able to meet with the people to assess them here um and so i kind of set that stuff in motion um and we did get clearance to the anaheim jail cool so i was able to actually get in there and meet with people we ended up yeah. some clients from there um i ended up uh and eventually, after a lot of fighting and a lot of, you know, I did get clearance at the jail. I actually had the same clearance as attorneys, had attorney clearance. I started meeting judges. Um, I started going in and meeting district attorneys, developed great relationships. I had some judges that were just highly supportive of, of what we were doing. Um, and uh, we did very, very well as a program. Um, I actually became really good friends with the DA that wanted to send me to prison for seven years. Back <laughs> in we actually became really good friends. That's um, cool. And uh, um, yeah, that was kind of an ironic scenario, you know. But uh, um, but yeah, I mean, we really moved forward. And then in uh, 2012, I um, got in, I got had a difficult time with my business partner left and I went to work for the lady that, that actually had the program that I uh, had gone through back in 2002, um, uh, 2003. And, um, and then I had a relapse and this was kind of the crazy part, you know, is that in, so this uh, is like how many years, what are you clean and doing 11, all this? I had 11 years clean. 11 years. I actually had 11 years clean. Nancy Clark, which is who I worked for, um, she actually threw a big party um, and actually a bunch of judges came to it, had some DAs that came, private attorneys, you know, a lot of different people that I developed all these relationships with. Um, they came to this party, you know, and um, made some bad decisions. Um, and, um, and actually it was, ironically, it was related to, um, I took a big pay cut, obviously going from the business I owned to working for Nancy. Um, I had a girlfriend at the time, finances started becoming difficult. We had an extra room where we lived and decided to rent it out. And so mm -hmm. we had this guy move in um, and we, um, I realized that this guy was doing meth. I kind of figured it out um, and he was gone. And so I actually went into his room. I found four glass pipes and smashed three of them because I was ready to throw this guy out, but I saved one. Interesting. I put it in my drawer. And, um, and he just still didn't show up for like a week. And I never, I never thought about it. Went to sleep one night and uh, I woke up and I had had a dream the night, this night. I literally could feel it. I could taste it. Um, and the cravings just hit so bad. And I woke up and my girlfriend was going to work, right? And I was just thinking like, and I had to go to court. I had somebody I actually had to appear in court with. Um, and... <laughs> And so I, um, she leaves and I just, I thought about it. I was like going, oh my God, 
I'm gonna hit this one just once. I'm gonna just take one hit, right? I'm just gonna take one hit. Um, and I was like, no way, that's crazy. Yeah, I can do it. Ah, there's no way, you know, bouncing around in my yeah. yells above benefactor, right? Just yep, yep, battling, you know. And uh, and I decided to hit it, you know, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. I mean. It, it was almost, in, uh, I went to court, I was high as shit, um, ended up smoking that whole bowl, and uh, and then it was on. And uh, didn't take long, back slamming it, back breaking into houses. I mean, everything I was doing, uh, I hit full on again. Um, and the only difference this time was that there was a lot of things I did not lose. When I relapsed, I did not lose my knowledge, my skills. I mean, the things that I, you know, and it was like I, I was able to grab onto something. And it was, it was actually the first time that I ever got clean without getting arrested. Um, and so I actually fought really hard. I was out for six months. I went on a six month run um, and um Finally got out and finally was like, you know what, I got to go to rehab. Um, and so I went to um, Tarzana Treatment Center out in Los Angeles. Um, and it was a very humbling experience. I'll bet. You know, I mean, going from, okay, I've owned programs, I've been program director, clinical director of programs. I mean, I know the rehab back and forward. I'm sitting in a room listening to things that I've taught before. Yeah. A ton of stuff you already know. <laughs> and uh, did people know you were out did they, or were you hiding it? Were, I mean, when you were on that six month string, were people aware of that's what you were doing? Not at first, uh, but it became evident. It did become evident at, at a uh, point in time. The lady I work for, um, I actually tried to keep it together and work, still work at the rehab. All right. Um, and I did for a little bit. Try to manage it. <laughs> it wasn't long though. You know, it did not take long. Um, and cause I, you know, it's like, I do so much of it, you know, I don't have that. Um, and I buy it in such large quantities, you know, I mean, I'm buying it by the quarter pound, um, you know, and of course trying to sell it, you know, uh, you know, to make the money and just, you know, that whole cycle gets back in. Um, and, uh, and that's where I, you know, so it's almost like you, I never run out, you know, and when I buy it and, and all I got to do is just, you know, the quantity I buy it, all I need to do is sell enough to make, make what I paid for it, you know? And so, and then I, I still got plenty left, you know? So it was like, I never ran out. Um, and that's, and that's dangerous, you know? Yeah. Uh, I start losing weight really quick. Um. I don't hide it well, you know, in terms of weight. I mean, I can, I can hold it together for quite a while where people can't, but I can't, I cannot hide my weight loss. Mm. You know, that's the one thing that I can't, um, I can't hide. And so I can put on a quick face and just like, I'm good. Everything's fine. You know, yeah. um, and, you're uh, melting away. Yeah. And so, um, but yeah, and then I got, I really jumped back into, um, you know, this whole, all right, I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to, I got to, I can't do this anymore. Um, getting clean that, that, that time there was brutal. 
I mean, the depression that I hit was just so intense. Um, and, uh, I, I was, I wouldn't have mind dying at that point, you know, I mean, I felt so just what's the point of life, you know, I don't want to live anymore. But once I got through that, um, I, I really decided that, you know what, I'm going to do this again. I'm going to make this happen. Um, it's one of the reasons I wrote this book, um, because I wanted to, I wrote this book for a lot of reasons. I mean, there was, um, you know, obviously to the people out there struggling, um, to families some stuff in their own fam for families. Um, there's a chapter there for the youth, you know, our young kids. And, yeah. I, mean, I can understand a lot of that stuff. Um, and it wasn't written as a directive approach at all. You know, um, it's, it was not, you know, like as far as the 12 step program, uh, 12 step program is fantastic. I love it. It's great, but it's not the only way either, you know? Um, and that was sort of my, you know, what I really wanted to do with that thing was to, um, open the door up, you know, to, thinking outside the box, you know, um, I have, I have a chapter in there on helping people learn to think for themselves. We can't think through the minds of other people. Um, we have to be able to think for ourselves. Um, you know, the 12 step program is, like I said, it's very good. I think the program itself is great. The issues that I have with the program are a lot of the people in the program. Yeah. Well, that's going to be anywhere you go because the, no matter how good something is, it still has these humans involved in it. Yep. And, uh, and so, um, and so that's, you know, I got a lot of stuff in there too, for like self-esteem, like, you know, really helping to learn to love yourself. You got to learn yeah. to love yourself. You got to figure out who you are, be who you are, you know, yep. um, because I lose myself, you know, I don't know who I am when I'm out there. Uh, and it's not me. I know it's not me because, you know, I'd never steal from anybody clean and sober. Yeah, me neither. Never steal from anybody, you know. I give you the shirt off my back, you know. When I'm using, I take your fucking shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you money if you need it. I don't have money. I don't have a lot of money. But if you need it, you know, for something good, I'll, I will give it to you, you know. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of stuff to try to give back, you know, to, um, the harm that I've done. And I know I've caused a lot of harm, you know? Um, and, um, but it's crazy cause I don't sit and regret, like, you know, I had to work through that stuff, you know? Um, yep, cause there's no value in that either. You know I mean? You, you gotta move past that and beating yourself up over it and. Uh, you know, you just said a minute ago about, you know, how to develop and maintain some self-esteem and, uh, that does not go, that does not take you in the same direction as building your self-esteem. Uh, yeah. you know, there's, uh, there's a little thing, you know, the, about, you know, that journey and hurting and doing and all the, the pain and suffering I caused, you know, and, and specifically the pain and suffering I caused for myself, you know, uh, but it's brought me this spot that I wouldn't be at if it wasn't for all that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was value in it. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. I mean, pain's inevitable, you know, 
pain is inevitable. We're going to have emotional pain. We're going to have physical pain. You know, it's going to be in our life. Uh, misery is optional, as you know, we always say, you know, right. I don't, yep. I can choose to um, be miserable or I can choose, you know, a different direction. Um, failure doesn't exist if you don't give up, you know. Um, but there is a reason I wrote that, you know, like that, because um, the, um, I, you know, like I look back on my life and all the pain that, that, you know, I've been through in my life um, has helped shape me. You know, I can say like, you know, I'm not who, I'm not my actions, right? That's why it's, you know, we don't want to label ourselves um, because that's not who I am. I am the one that did those things, but that's not who I am. Right. Um, and I can honestly say today that, you know, even though there's nothing I've done that makes me who I am, it has helped shape me in some ways. And I love who I am today, you know? Um, and I think I honestly, like I look at my relapse, for instance, um, it, now, trust me, this did not happen in the beginning of the, when I got into treatment. Yeah, <laughs> this is all looking in the rear view mirror stuff. Yeah. But it took me some time. But later I got to this place and I was like, you know what? I'm actually glad that happened, you know, because I gained so much knowledge from it. I mean, you know, you always hear in the program, you know, it's like, you know, if, you know, if you go out in years, it's like you never stop. Right. We, we've all heard that saying. Yep. Right. 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 And. I can honestly tell you, yes, you can. It's like you never stopped, you know? I mean, th that experience that I went through is so accurate, you know? And is, it is, uh, it's so true, you know? I mean, I literally went from, you know, um, you know, having a huge passion for what I did, having values, having morals, caring for people, you know, and never harm my friends, right? To... I don't care about you. Nothing matters, you know, and I got, I mean, I have, you know, I got a good friend of mine that sadly is in prison today right now um, because yes, he, he took it where he took it. Um, but I gave it to him. He had, he had 10 years clean and sober. I manipulated the shit out of him um, because we used to joke about, um, Man, if we could sell dope, not do it, but if we could just sell it, you know, it's kind of joke, you know, that's how you make money, right? On right, right. Dope, you know, and we used to just joke about it, right? And so after I'd relapsed, I never wanted to tell him I had actually relapsed. But all I'm thinking is like, oh my God, okay, how can I, how can I, um, um, you know, who can I sell to? Who can I make money from, you know? And so I went to my friend and I made up this whole big story about how I ran into this old dealer of mine, you know, and he was, you know, he's got this great price for me to buy some dope. And I was like, you know, so I made this whole story up and, and he's got a wife and he had a kid, has a kid, oh, kid damn. Actually, you know, and he was always struggling with money, needed money. And so I used that as a manipulative tool. Um, and so, you know, he, he buys an eight ball from me, you know, um, and then he sells it, you know. And, um, and so all of a sudden now it's in his hands, you know, and he was meth was his drug of choice too. Mm. Um, and, and then he hit a, one day I, I called him, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, or, uh, why don't you come on over? And so he comes over and I told him, I was like, man, you know, I, I messed up, you know, I relapsed. And, uh, after our talk, he's like, you got a needle, you know, and I was mm. like, yeah, I got some, you know? 
So of course I give him, you know, give him some dope and loads it up, shoots himself up and he's off and, you know, there he is, you know? Um, and so he's trying to sell it and he's out selling, of course, he's out doing it, ends up selling to um, some undercovers, um, ends up getting a sales charge, um, gets his bail posted, gets out and gets busted again. Mm. So he's got a crime bail crime, you know, and um, he ends up getting 10 years, eight months, right? Damn. Because um, he's a, you know, he's got a prior prison term, 99 or yeah, 99. He had a strong arm robbery. He's got a strike. You know, he had a gun on him too when he got arrested. Mm. Um, so felon in possession of a firearm. <clears throat> 10 years, eight months. This guy is one of the best guys in the world when he's clean and sober. Yeah. He's, he's exactly the same. You know, I mean, he, he is the, um, you know, he was my, he was basically like my secondhand man at my rehab that I had, you know, he was out there, you know, out there, uh, fighting for clients, you know, helping, you know, doing, doing groups. I mean, he had a passion and he had excitement, you know, and he uses passion's gone. I mean, that's yeah. where we lose it instantly. And he becomes a different person. You know, it's just addiction is brutal. It is. Yeah. You know? Yep. It's like flipping the switch and, uh, you know, uh, addicts get a bad, you know, have a very bad reputation from the actions that they do, you know, but you get to the core of just about all of them. And inside of there is a really good person that's covered up with addiction. You know, I don't, I, I very rarely uncover that stuff and find out. Oh, yeah. Well, he's still a piece of dirt underneath of there, you know? Uh, but, it, and, uh, the links it will take you to, and you've explained a whole bunch of them today is just phenomenal. And like, you look at a guy like what I'm looking at right now, you never think, you know, I would never guess, you know, that you were up to what you were up to. And, uh, and, and I fall from that same thing. You know, I was, my deal was the pain pills and, uh, and, and I went down that path and, um, and I wasn't, and, and I wasn't able to get enough to sustain me. And I was too chicken shit to go buy them on the street. So, and it seems funny, but I wasn't too chicken shit to break in houses and get them because at that time, at that time, when I was doing that, there were still a lot of them in people's medicine cabinets, just sitting around, you know, unused. And I, you know, I'd even justify and say, you know, I actually liked it when I'd see a script that was old, you know, cause then I knew I wasn't like taking medicine out of somebody's hands. You know, this has just been in the cupboard for a while. They don't need it anymore. And I really related to you too, man, because I did. I come to realize that uh, part of the deal was the thrill of going in those houses. Part of that adrenaline, that jacked up feeling. It was like, you know, no drug could really give me that. That that so heightened alert system and stuff that uh, that that once, you know, it's hard. Like you said, I look at You look at a lot of the stuff in the rear view mirror, right? It's all hindsight. And you really, you know, if you do the work around it and you come get your clear head and you can look back and see that stuff is that there was a big chunk of it was that adrenaline dump that I was after. Cause sometimes I wouldn't even find what I was looking for, but I'd still get the adrenaline from it. And, uh, that, uh, your, our stories in parallel each other in, in a, in a bunch of different, in a bunch of ways. Uh, uh, my drug of choice was always just alcohol, really, though. That was what was always on the table. And I went through phases where, you know, for whatever happened to be available in my neighborhood, more or less, you know, or, or the people I was running with, whatever happened to be available is what I what I was doing. You know, went on stretches of uh, 
you know, using a lot of psychedelics. I always smoke pot, but one of the things I didn't like, and I think I heard that from you too, is I didn't want anything that would bring me down. Yeah. You know, I wanted things that would bring me up and alcohol is already depressing. It's already wanting to bring you down. And, uh, and, uh, and of course it's just readily available no matter whether, you know, the dealers are never out of alcohol. Uh, you know, you don't have to worry about, uh, uh, missing a day of that. Um, but I always just did whatever was available. And then one day, uh, alcohol quit working for me. And one day, uh, my mom had had a back surgery and she'd had some pills and, uh, and I, and I grabbed a couple of them. And although I had taken them in the past for injuries, cause that's, I was, you know, they, they would have said I was accident prone. You know, I was always hurting myself. And when you said something about having head trauma stuff, I kind of, you know, it was another one of bell ringers where I was like, huh? Uh, cause I was on the ground and I hurt myself and I would wreck bikes and motorcycles and, and end up hurt a bunch. And I would get those pain pills then but I never really put it together too much. I, I compound fractured my leg and I remembered, uh, I was 19 years old and I can remember being in the hospital and really liking the medicine, you know, really liking it, you know, uh, never really still didn't have my arms around still, you know, dumb 19 year old, but it wasn't until I was in my middle thirties or something that this all come down on me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I took those pills from my mom and once that magic, you know, the alcohol all of a sudden started working again and, uh, boom. And, and I'm doing stuff, you know, I'm an engineer. I've got two kids. I'm married, got a nice house, two cars in a garage, you know, all that looked like a guy who had his shit together. Uh, yep. but behind it was, uh, was a raging addict that could not, you know, could not control anything in his life. Um, mm -hmm. and the things that I would do to other people, like you were talking about, you know, uh, steal, steal, steal step on anything i you know anything i needed to step on to get to get some more of it yep. uh didn't didn't make didn't make any difference to me and that's the furthest thing from who i really am the furthest yep yeah you know the it and what i realized you know is why i call my podcast high wall clean right because what i realized you know as time went on it was like and, and of course, after really delving in and studying physiological effects, you know, of drugs and alcohol, is that highness is not a property of drugs, it's a property of people, right? And we don't get high on drugs. We get high on our chemicals. All drugs do is they manipulate our chemicals. Mm -hmm. you know? So you say, and dopamine, of course, is the primary substance that we're seeking you know, to get high on because, you know, it's in the mid part of the brain. It's the survival part of the brain. That's the, that's where we really look at, you know, the power behind addiction. You know, if I'm doing something that's manipulating the mid part of my brain, that's designed for survival, there's nothing more powerful than survival, you know? And so that's, that's why I call it high wall clean because yeah, I like that too, you know, because that is what I am. What I'm looking for today is no different than I was looking for then when I was getting loaded. I've just found a different way to do it. You know, yeah. I've now found I, you know, when I do when I do podcasts or when I meet with people like you, I get high. Me too. You know, yep. when I when I when I go, you know, when I teach at the school I'm at, I get high, I feel high, you know. Yeah. Um, I love um my wife and I are actually um kind of remodeling her house, you know. Um, I was a painter for years. Um, I do a lot, you know, able to do a lot of construction. I do the work myself. Why? Because I get high doing yep. it. Right. Know? 
yep. get it done, you step back and you're like, damn, this looks good. Yeah, good job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You pat yep. yourself on the back, you know? Yep. And uh, and that's why, you know, and, and that's where I, once I realized that, everything changed in my mind, you know, because one thing about getting high by you and I talking, there's no side effects to it. Right. You know? Yep. There's no, like crash you know yep yep when we're done you know no hangover no uh you know we're not hurting anybody that's everything you know uh I'm not causing any damage anywhere matter of fact most of what i'm doing is usually helping somebody today so there's that side effect too because you know when i'm sitting down with a guy one-on-one -on -one and i'm marketing through these 12 steps i'm hiring a kite when i'm handing him these tools and and i and especially if i can see that he's actually getting it you know if he's getting somewhere uh man i am buzzed up for a long time uh, these these podcasts when i do these podcasts i have to make sure that i like have a window of time after them to come down yeah and i may need a nap in a little while too that's another thing i'll come down and need about a 20 minute recovery period if i schedule something right off the back of one of these podcasts what means is i'll be this high and there is still there's can still be a little bit of a crash for me it's not an unhealthy thing it's just that it's just i'm up here yeah. and when i when i come down i just need to breathe it may mean a 15 minute meditation or something, you know, that might be what a nap looks like, yep. but, uh, yeah, I get it. I get it off of these podcasts and, and that's, that did attract me. Uh, when I saw that byline under your thing that clicked with me that, you know, getting high on life today yep. and I don't need that artificial high. I do. I, one of my, one of my podcasts, you gotta check it out. It's called, um, uh, I called it, uh, uh, let's get high. Right. And, uh, and so I tell it, I tell in it, I tell a little story of, uh, I went bungee jumping, right? So back when I was in Chico, actually, I mm. jumped off a 300 foot bridge and scared the hell out of me, but the adrenaline was just unbelievable, you know, yeah. and it was so powerful. And you talk about the crash, right? That when they pulled me back up and, you know, I, I get, I climbed back over the railing, they unhooked me and everything I go and I sit down and I just passed out. Oh, did you? Yeah, I just like literally crashed, you know, and uh, and then th that podcast, I do something else that, that is really good. I go through this ridiculously insane laughing episode, right? I mean, I laugh so hard. I'm like turning purple, right? And uh, laughter is highness. I mean, yep. you want to talk about and it's so funny because when I do it in that, I just did that one podcast. I just started laughing and laughing and laughing and uh I, I, uh, I felt so high afterwards and I wasn't laughing at anything. I mean, it was just like a, but it was a real genuine laugh. And the yeah. more that I did it, the more that it actually became funny. And so, I mean, I literally was laughing my ass off, you know? And so, uh, and I've done it with clients before too. I'm like, I, I said, let's just start laughing, you know? And, yeah. uh, and so I always start it, you know, and then as they're watching me, they start laughing, you know, and it's like a contagious thing, yep, you know, it is contagious. A smile, you know, it's always the, your smile is the most powerful muscle you got. Yeah. You can actually affect the lives of others by smiling at them and, yep. uh, and turn somebody's complete, uh, turn their, their energy in 180 degrees, just with a smile sometimes. Yep. Um, I love those laughing fits, man. I'm part of a bunch of dudes that are uh, really close and doing this 12 step thing and we're doing more too. So we don't let this, uh, I believe this 12 steps was a springboard for me uh, to clean house and get, get some kind of operating principles. Cause that's the other thing I never really had. Um, 
I didn't know how to, I, I frankly didn't know how to do this thing called life sober. I just didn't know how to, mm-hmm. and you know, I could put down the stuff for a little while and in, in your story too, about all these, okay, I'm really going to do this this time. Okay. I'm really done. I'm done this time, you know, and usually off the tail end of some consequences, you know, uh, I had a couple of DUIs by the time I was 19, I'd been jacked up for drugs uh, more times than I have any idea how many times in high school, you know, whether it's just smoking pot in a you know, park someplace before going to school or, uh, you know, we got caught with, uh, with about, with about a quarter, a uh, quarter pound of pot. And we had eight hits of acid and a whole bunch of liquor. And, and of course we, there was two of us and that's why we had eight hits of acid because two of them were already gone. <laughs> and, uh, and we got jacked up, 15 minutes into that night uh that was that was not a fun place to ride the acid out uh Mm -hmm. but all that would happen and i would do something to put my tail feathers out and i really did truly think that i was going to change something every single one of those times i really did tell myself and i told you that you know i'm not going to do this anymore the consequences are too heavy i'm i have got to stop and that uh, there's a line in there about that uh, in the big book. It says something to the effect of uh, can't remember the pain and suffering a weeks or a month ago, you know, and and that would happen to me over and over again. Because like you said, when you picked up that pipe, you know, you know, wow, I can just do one, you know, I can just pull I can just do a little bit. I always had this faulty uh, thought that somehow or another it was going to be different this time. Uh, somehow or another, I was like at some point where I could actually moderate and manage this thing. And uh, time and time again, I couldn't, you know, until I ended up getting, you were talking about that and you got my heart rate up a little bit about slipping in there and getting that purse right out from underneath the people. Cause uh, uh, I remember going right in people's bedrooms while they're sleeping and the t- glow of the TV on in a room and is enough to see and reach around and get in uh, bedroom drawers and stuff like that and, and, and find what I was looking for. Uh, and I did that one night and as I shook some out, uh, I had turned around and when I turned around, a guy had a pepper spray and a bowel bat and it was the people's son. I'd been in this house before and, uh, and he laid into me with that pepper spray and that ball bat. And I got away that night. Uh, it was a horrible night cause now I'm out on the streets here. Uh, having I have no idea what I'm going to do. You know, uh, where do you go? I had really thought about committing suicide that night. You know, that was an option at night rather than come back and face these consequences that I knew was waiting for me. And um, and I stood in front of a judge down here in New Omni, in New Omni, Indiana, that said, uh, uh, "Those are the crimes I had committed." The Indiana sentencing guidelines was six to twenty years in the Indiana Department of Corrections, and uh, that was not something I was willing to do. And that was enough. That's what, finally, that's, that's what residential or residential burglary. Yep, yep. And um, that was enough. And you know, I really, again, in the rearview mirror, I don't think I would ever got that. They did come down and you'd said something. I remember, I remember it coming down during the pre-trials and all these, you know, all that negotiating that goes on with your lawyer and, and I'm out on bail and I'm going to work and I'm trying to be good. I still couldn't quit drinking, but I wasn't doing pills anymore, you know, and, and I was not supposed to be drinking and I had my kids at certain times. So I had to keep the lid on it whenever anybody was looking, but when nobody was looking, I was still drinking. And part of that was, is that the only way I could turn off that, that, that misery, that remorse, that guilt and shame from what, from where I was actually at at this point in my life at, you know, 44 years old and uh, looking at that. 
And they come down to that three year thing for a while, you know, and a bunch of my buddies said, don't worry about it, man. You only had to serve a year and a half. <laughs> and, uh, that still didn't sound like anything. <laughs> my turning point happened in similar, you know, some power doing for me that I, that I couldn't, um, and, and the, the timing, one of the other things that I notice as I'm doing this walk is, uh, the universe's magnificent timing. It's, it's, it's almost, uh, mm -hmm. it's certainly entertaining and it's humorous, uh, is that when I, I ran into, I got asked to go to a 12 step meeting and I heard a guy talking that was gelling with me. You know, when he was speaking, he was talking to my soul. I'd never met him before in my life, but when he shared in that meeting that night, uh, I was hearing him right. and, uh, and so I kept on going back to that meeting, but this, we did a thing where he said, uh, all men who's willing to able sponsor got through 12 steps, raise your hand. This guy never did raise his hand. And so I kept on going back, hoping that he would one day. And, uh, I went to court one day and, um, I usually would drink all day long after going to court. It'd be in the morning. I'd take a day off work. I'd get enough liquor to last me all night or, you know, till bedtime. Couldn't have no leftovers laying around cause mom and dad might stop by or by now that marriage was over. And, uh, the, who knew, who knew might be, who might be coming by and, um, but I didn't drink that day. And by the time I got to that meeting and they asked if anybody had a burning desire this whole time, I'm telling these guys that I'm okay. And I'd had some sobriety in the past. And, uh, when I walked in there that day, I just dumped my bucket on the floor and told those guys in that meeting. And that guy that never raised his hand walked up to, to me after the meeting. And he said, Hey man, I want to sponsor you. And, uh, and it wasn't very short time after that, they started looking at giving me, you know, home incarceration or a work, release type of program and i ended up getting sentenced to a year of home incarceration and a year of probation and actually wow. was sentenced to three years i had a year year of home incarceration a year of probation and then the third was suspended pending successful completion of the other two which you know what that you know if i fucked it up then i'd be doing three years and um and I just saw, I saw some power working in my life. I call them miracles today. Uh, I saw some power working in my life uh, that, that touched me enough that kept me reaching for it, you know, and, and I still reach for it today because I get the chances to, to have those, you know, to getting, getting high uh, sober here, getting high clean, as you say, high while clean and, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, getting to make a difference in the world for one time. That's something that I feel I honestly am doing now, you know, I'm having a positive impact on the people that come, you know, down my path rather than, than a negative. It gives me purpose. It gives me some feeling like um, I deserve to share oxygen with the rest of you folks. And, but that turning point, it was interesting. That turning point was when that guy and I made a decision to actually, uh, frankly, turn the wheel of my life over to this guy that i call my sponsor <laughs> and all of a sudden the court started acting differently about my sentencing and they didn't know what i was doing you know they're not it i'm not telling them what i'm doing and they're not out seeing it so uh a lot of parallels as you spoke today uh you know and that's that's kind of what i was saying in our beginning about these uh bell ringers you know there's there's these commonalities amongst us all uh that that are real interesting about these paths, you know, they're, they're, they're different, but yet there's this common theme runs through most of our lives. And, uh, you know, when we're out there wheeling and dealing, we think we're the only person in the world, you know, that's got, that's going through with that terminal uniqueness. We think we're the only person in the world could possibly be feeling and doing, uh, what I'm doing today. And, 
get clean, you find out, no, that's what we were all doing. We were all feeling that. Mm -hmm. yes. So what, uh, what's it, the name of your book is? Pain, failure, and misery are the stepping stones to success. And it's Eric McCoy. Eric McCoy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You can Eric use my McCoy. last name. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, if you're writing a book, uh, if you wrote a book, you definitely need to get that last name out there. Uh, what's the recovery ecosystems? Uh, so the re that's actually a, that's actually a company. So a recovery ecosystem um, is um, a, it's a company that I have that's for consulting. We do a lot of consulting for um, companies that are wanting to get uh, joint commission accredited as a as a which are hospital standards for treatment facilities. Um, and so I kind of lumped a lot of this stuff together, you know. Um, High Wall Clean podcast is actually a nonprofit. It's sort of a not-for-profit, you know, kind of thing. Um, and um, I'm connected with this place called Building Beyond Me, which is really cool. Um, they're a nonprofit that um, sort of works to bring people together with messages to share. Um, and uh, yeah, it's you know, I'm I'm trying to do a lot of different stuff. That that I, again, I'm, if I can reach somebody, if I can help somebody um you know with uh with different stories and i kind of do a lot of what you're doing you know with um uh, i have i have some where my podcasts are more educational mm -hmm. or various different stuff um i have some great interviews um i try to you know so many podcasts like you know i was telling you before you know sort of have some you know they're always seeking the entertainment industry you know those type yeah. you know which a lot of people can't relate to yeah yeah um, and, uh, and I do have some, but they're, um, you know, Jeremy Jackson, who is the son on, um, um, of David Hasselhoff on Baywatch. I got, you know, I interviewed him on there. Really cool. Yeah. And, uh, but he's a great guy though. And I I've known him actually for a while. Uh, he's a really good guy that, um, and I think he is relatable to a lot of people, you know, yeah. um, just, just with the substance abuse part of the story, you know? um yeah i don't monetize my podcast at all i'm just doing it i don't i'm not against it but um that's never been a goal it was uh started out by a bunch of guys in my home group and we thought we might have something interesting to stay and we started playing around with producing some podcasts and bought a couple of microphones and started recording some group exactly. things where there were six of us sitting around and we would talk about step one or we would talk about something and uh one of the things i say and that uh alcoholics have a lot of startup not much follow-through uh, you know, after a little while, nobody else had time for it, you know, and I had, there was something in my heart that wanted to keep it going. And so like the first five, six episodes are, uh, our group discussion things. And then there I was by myself. So I called one of my sponsees and said, Hey man, why don't you come over to my house and I'll, we will record your story. And, uh, he said, okay. So then I called a different sponsee next week. And then I, you know, and then, so now I put it out there and I, you know, um, uh, had pretty good time you know got people that are local and people that are not so local and we talk a little bit about nicotine recovery i got some stuff on here about that i got some stuff on about divorce recovery uh basically just recovering from any kind of traumatic thing that might happen to you i'm open to to having it on here and uh, my sponsor uh wrote a book called 12 step spiritual recovery which is he he's been his same sponsor he's a certified uh, addiction counselor you know, I don't know what the exact, all the, the, the letters afterward it is, but he's been doing it for a while. Yeah. And, uh, 
and he's really, you know, he saved my life and, and he really knows this addiction stuff and the human nature behind it. Uh, I feel like I've, I feel to some extent, like I've sat at the foot of a master while I've been getting well. And, um, and he wrote this book and he took everything that he, everything he's been taught about the 12 steps for the past 37 years and, uh, and, and documented it where, you know, there's, things people do in 12 steps that's not in the book you know people you know there's these lineages and different ways people have tuned it and uh we have this this particular uh method of going through it which we find is a uh a super uh, effective way to do it and we're offering it here in louisville to people who don't have addictions and alcoholism there we've got a group of you know i don't you know i don't know how many really but we have a thursday night meeting where we get 25 to 35 people in there and half of them are not addiction people but they're still harnessing these 12-step tools to improve their lives and to get some of the trauma resolved in their past and things like that and it's working and i sponsor a number of those folks too and uh yeah so it's just like kind of like you know i got my i got an iron in the fire over here and another one over here and and then when i do for money is i'm a handyman and a woodworker i got wood shop in the back and you were talking about construction and how you feel about when you're done putting something together you know and i go out in the town and i fix people's stuff and there's a huge big piece of there's a huge big reward like karmically almost for me when i go out and i and I fix your stuff in your house and I'm walking out the door and you're happy because your stuff is fixed. And I got a few bucks in my pocket and, uh, it feels like service, even though I'm getting paid for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you that, you know, you'd mentioned like the basic premise of like human behavior, right? So the basic premise of human behavior is that you only do what you would rather do than not do at this particular moment in time, right? Yeah. So the premise that you'll never do anything you don't want to do. I know that's kind of a weird statement, right? Yeah. But you do things either because you, to avoid consequences or to get something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now here's an interesting thing though, is that people stay, people get sober because they want to avoid consequences, right? Of what they don't want but people stay sober because of what they do want, right? Mm. And I think it's so important. And I, I, I always try to teach this to, to, you know, like the, the, like if I had clients, even I talk about this with my students is, you know, that I think that concept's so important, you know, for us to think about, I don't do things anymore because of what I don't want. Yeah. I do things because of what I do want. And that's where I get the highness, you know? Um, that's like a shift in recovery in a way. And it's, I think in my, I could, I could relate to that, that, you know, for the longest time I was doing this because I didn't, what I didn't want. Yep. And then there was like a, like a cam rolling over or something, you know, that all of a sudden, and I don't really realize it all of a sudden I'm doing this because of what, like I said, those miracles are happening in my life and I want more of them. Uh, yep. I want more of this good that's happening in my life, but I'm no longer like running away from the Indiana Jones boulder that, used to seem like it was rolling down the hill behind me right i like that yep uh, nah man it's uh, life's great today you know yeah um you know and it's funny too the the book itself evolved from me losing my business right actually i had a partner at this uh, uh this place in, in lake elsinore um, and we ended up closing the place right financial reasons um and that's how the book evolved, you know, the podcast evolved from COVID by being sort of stuck in trying to figure out what am I going to do? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so yeah. it's the same premise too. It's like, you know, something happened that opened a door, you know, and I like what you had said about the idea that, 
you know, I, I believe things happen for a reason, you know, and I think there is the timing plays a lot into it, you know? Um, and, uh, I, I never thought I'd ever be able to sit and write a book. This is a God thing. I'm telling you, man. Yeah. You know, it's like to, I've never had that much patience, you know, to write a 350 page book. Yeah. 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 With Christopher being an author, I watch him do that. And I watch, and he's also in the middle of writing a a fiction novel at the moment, Hmm. but to watch the amount of energy he puts into writing. uh, I used to think I wanted to write a book, but I don't know if I'm, uh, (laughs) I don't know if I'm built for that. So uh, congratulations on that. Cause I certainly can honor the amount of uh, dedication and, and the amount of your life energy went into it. And I'd like to send you a copy of it. I'd love to have that. So when we're done here, um, uh, give me your address. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's a. I'll I'll do that, and uh, also uh, I do want to get any kind of information because people will listen to this podcast. This is actually the January starts my third year doing this. Okay, uh, COVID definitely has had a huge big impact on uh, on it, and it's and it's been you know. Uh, I always try to look at the plus sides, but uh, like our immediate groups, the guys that are new coming in because we're just doing zoom meetings and stuff. They don't really get to know us by standing outside the church talking and, you know, and going out and having a cheeseburger afterwards and that kind of stuff. And what they're getting to do is they're getting all my buddies and all my main groups has a podcast on my channel. And so if you want to know more about Shane or you want to know more about Travis or you want to, you know, you can go out there and listen to him, tell his story and, uh, and, and get to know him a little better. And, and uh, yeah. turned out really good. So I would like to make sure I get any kind of, um, uh, avenues where somebody can get the book if they want it and um, that kind of thing and make sure I get on get in the show notes anyway that people might be interested in contacting you or 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 talking more about what what you had to offer absolutely I like what you said uh if you can only you know I I heard you say you didn't say this exactly but you know I do I operate with this premises that you know if I can just touch one person today was a success absolutely yeah you know, just one and I don't have to do that but I'm, uh, I'm not aiming to change the world but if if some words we say today make somebody go, Hey, uh, that's a tool or that's a way to look at it that I hadn't thought about before. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, then, then definitely it was a success. Yeah. People can always, um, you know, even reach out to me. I mean, my, you know, my, my email address is emccoy at highwallclean.org. Um, and then, you know, the podcast, uh, is, is, uh, I have it on my website. I have highwall highwallclean.org is my website um, you can cool. also youtube and um you know that arena yeah. Um, but yeah people can always reach out to me you know so I, do you put yours all do you put yours on youtube too yes yeah i was doing that for a while most of mine are just audio but i was tra- i was converting the, the content into a mm-hmm. youtube video uh without you know just with my logo on it you know and um man my listenership was not on youtube at all and i just ended up thinking because it takes a bit more work to you know it takes a little work to produce these podcasts anyway it's not a lot but it takes some work and then i had to take it a whole nother step to get it on youtube and sometimes i'll do the ones and the the zoom ones really lend themselves to youtube pretty easy because you really don't have to do much to them to get those converted over but i I, uh, I have a YouTube channel, but, uh, it's, it, it doesn't see much action. So where's uh, your, uh, where is your, uh, where do you host your, uh, where do you host it? The podcast is ho- my host is anchor. 
okay. ANCHOR, it's free podcasting service. That's another reason why, you know, I was looking around at places and they were $59.99 for this much and $39.99 and you were paying these subscriptions to have your podcast. And I was just, in the beginning, I was like, I don't know if I want to do that, you know? And then like where it was in the price range, what I thought was reasonable, uh, most of my podcasts go a couple hours and the minutes that they allow you to upload there a couple years ago was limit. They had limits, you know, and then I'm another kind of God thing. You know, I'm sitting there tapping around wondering what I'm going to do. And I run into this podcast service that says it's free. I'm but, like, no way. And they'll connect with the other places. Too. <laughs> they just, yeah, they, they, they host it and distribute it for free. So, I mean, and, and I put a little anchor commercial on the front of it and they pay me a little stipend. So, uh, it doesn't near pay for it. And I say, I don't monetize it, but I use their little thing and, uh, been real happy with them. Been with them. You know, this is the third year I've been, um, uh, doing podcasts through anchor. Mm-hmm. Um, I've spoken Mon- place the other yeah, night and monetizing, I take monetizing that it, you don't get a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what it's never was that after that, you know? And, uh, you know, you said something about the 12 step people and I really, I I know like I can catch a little bit of uh shrapnel once in a while, like that I'm doing something here that would be against the traditions or, you know, and I have some people once in a while um, uh, that I invite to come to, uh, share on the podcast and, and they won't do it because they feel that it's against the traditions. Um, so sometimes I oh, know if you're talking about, yeah, the 12 traditions about the press radio and films and the, you know, all this business, you know, and I try to, you know, I don't believe this is doing that at all. And if I'm doing it, a whole bunch of other people are too. And I don't call this an AA podcast. This is a recovery podcast. I don't, you know, we talk about everything we want to talk about here. And like I said, I've got people recovering from other things other than substance abuse. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not claiming to be AA. I am not affiliated whatsoever. Just so happens that a lot of my guys and people that I know got sober with AA. I used it earlier. There's other ways to do this. And I'm sure there's some other ways to get sober. Uh, people do it, but I don't know any of the other ones. This is the one I know. <laughs> yeah, it would be, it would be an odd scenario for, you know, you'd have a podcast and have somebody tell their story. And then, you know, they're like going, and then I got involved in it. Well, then I can't tell you that part. So let's talk, you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, you have yeah. to leave this whole story out because, you know, that's not what that tradition was, you know, meant no. for. I mean, no. you can, you know, if you're, if you're telling somebody your story um, and you're working to help other people, um, it's absurd not to mention it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I hope, you know, my, my thing on this is that, you know, sadly, there's a lot of people out there that we're not going to reach, you know, um, you know, you got all the people that are living under the underpass overpass, you know, living in, living in holes and, you know, broken down buildings that are getting loaded, you know, and sadly they're not going to hear this stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, if you, you know, if you are able to reach certain people that are getting loaded, you know, and, you know, you, and there are people out there that have never heard about the 12 step program somewhere along the line, they need to hear about it. So I think that's unfair too, you know, to even say like, Oh, we're not going to talk about it, but hopefully somebody hears it, you know, maybe somebody's getting loaded and goes, Oh, wait a minute. Maybe there is something I can look into. Yeah. Maybe there is another way. Yeah. I have guests once in a while that say, you know, they're, can I talk about drugs? Oh, man, this is your story. And I want to hear the truth. That's what I want. I want to hear your story in the truth, most truthful version you can deliver it. You know, uh, I'm not going to sit here and tell you And some guys, you know, uh, 
some of my podcasts, you know, some guests uh, use the use the word fuck in every sentence they have, you know, and okay, that's what we'll do today. And uh, beware if you're listening to this, this is it got some <laughs> language in it because I don't really it doesn't bother me. Uh, I usually take my I usually take my my guests lead on that. Uh, I can cuss like a sailor, too. And, but if my guest is is running a clean show today, well, I keep it that way too. Maybe he wants his mom to listen to it. Yeah. Uh, and I try to, you know, it's funny with my story. It's like I, you know, I mean, you heard a little bit. Like I'll say a little bit, like a couple of times, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I try to keep it a little clean. You know, I don't, I don't really think that that, you know, I was, I always kind of look at, you know, the, for me to be clear in my communication. Profanity, that's a slang, is could potentially mess that up. Like fuck, the word fuck. How many, how many meanings have that? Whoa. <laughs> right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, and it's a really a turnoff for some people, man. And um, you know, not using it is not gonna turn anybody off. You know? uh, yeah, and, but you but you really could. You could you could turn some people off by that. And uh, and you know, when I talk, uh, I would like to say that I only use it for emphasis when it's, when it's powerful, you know, when it means something. Otherwise I can, uh, uh, I can deliver a, a perfectly clean talk without using any cuss words if I want to. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, but I don't, you know, I don't want, I don't judge anybody on it. And I know there is an, also an element of a lot of the rough edge people that come in and I mean by rough, I mean by they're beaten up by the system and the, you know, they're, they're on the throw, they're in the throes of this thing. Sometimes that's the language they hear, you know, that's, that's, uh, if I'm too clean, they don't hear me. <laughs> I got, I got, I got to talk their language a little bit for them to, uh, to make that identification that, yeah, that even though that guy don't look like he's ever been where I'm at, he talks right. like he might have been. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. But there's a, I, I, I worry about this a little bit, but I don't, Cause I say some, you know, it's my podcast and I say some of the same things over and over again, because, you know, my guest has not heard me say this stuff. And so I, I don't worry about it too much, but, uh, I had a lot of collateral damage in my life over the years. And today what seems to happen is that, uh, I have a lot of collateral benefit in my life today as a result of doing this thing. And, uh, one of the things that I just love about the podcast is that I get to know somebody better, man. I just love people. And I love to hear people's stories. And, yep. uh, and so thank you for doing that. Uh, you know, I really do. Every time I leave the podcast, I feel like I've just gained a new friend, yep. you know, that I've, I've got a new friend in, in this, you know, and I, uh, all that isolation we used to do where we didn't want anybody to see us, you know, except for people who were doing what we were doing, you know, I try to collect up as much Absolutely. of this human positive energy into my, into my perimeter as I possibly can. And this podcast has been beautiful for that. Cause I would not know some, I would never met some of the people that I've met if it wouldn't be for doing this. You know what? And then if I'm out in your area, I got a place to stop in and say, Hey, yep, you do. Yep. Yep. If you're ever near <laughs> little Kentucky, man, I got a spot. No doubt. So if you're ever out in this area, let me know, man. Well, yeah, sounds good, man. So I always, uh, you know, I, I, I did, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I take, you know, all this whole thing that I have, I've taken from somebody else. I don't know any of this. I've borrowed phrases and I've uh, learned sayings. And uh, so I always like to offer up uh, 
concluder. If you got any concluding thoughts, I took that from one of my favorite, I, I hunt and one of my favorites podcasts is a, is a hunter. Right. And, uh, and he, he offers his guests a concluder uh, before we sign off. So if there's anything you want to say, any message or whatever it is. It... You know, absolutely. You, um, there was something you had said. Um, I was trying to think of what it was. Uh, I, um, damn it, there was something you had said that I was going to say something about. Um, we change the subject, <laughs> it'll come back. What's that? I said, oh, well, usually the thing is, is to change the subject and then you'll remember for just a second. I know. Um, but anyway, so, yeah. So, you know, in, in terms of, you know, uh, for people that are listening out there, um, you know, it's recovery. And the exciting thing for me, and I know this kind of goes aside, a step aside for different people, but you know, it's a journey, you know, and that's what this has become is that it's, it's, you know, the concept of when people say like, oh, life's going to suck, life's going to be boring, life's going to, oh, you know, when I get clean. No, it doesn't have to be, you know, you still get to get high, right? Still get to get high. We just do it a little bit differently, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, the, and there's so many people out there that are willing, I know that are willing to help anybody, you know, that is, um, you know, that is struggling. There are some great people out there that, you know, want to put their hands out and to help the 12 step program. Definitely. You know, I mean, the 12 step program is by far the best self-help program out there. You know, you'll never find something as big and as large as they are. I mean, you can go to any, country in the world and you can find a meeting you may not understand their language but you can <laughs> you could go anywhere you know in the world um and and that that really has been the fun thing for me you know and i've realized that um you know oh I, and you i kind of i think about now what you had said so you know you had Told talked you. about yeah you had talked about how um you know our minds forget painful things you know and um that's why I've always believed and you know said many times that you know the people that have the 20 years clean and sober are probably closer to a relapse than the one that got 30 days mm. you know? yeah because that memory is powerful in there um, and a lot of this I think is really based on you know we have to look at our thinking you know um, our perceptions of stuff, you know, like, you know, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, we don't describe the world we see, we see the world that we describe. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And so, you know, it's really about, and I, and I believe that is so true. It's why it's also why like you and I could see something and see it completely different, you know, yeah. um, because it's all about what's going on in here, you know, in my mind, um, you know, I, and I think staying positive, you know, um, is, is very important. I used to do a group with clients and they loved this too, but it was like the power of the mind. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would go around to each one of them and I would look at them and I'd shake their hand and I'd say, I wish you health and happiness. And they'd look at me and say the same thing, you know, and I'd go to the next one. I wish you health and happiness. And we'd go around the whole room, you know. Yeah. And then after that, I'd have everybody give up, get up and do it to each other, you know. Wish you health and happiness. And Absolutely. what's fu what's funny about it is that they 
literally, you know, then they'd start laughing and then they'd start feeling good. And then like, literally I'd ask them all, okay, sit back down. How do you guys feel? And they're like, man, I feel great. Yeah. You know, you created a big puddle of wellness and happiness, you know, you you did that. you know, yep. I get off on some things where I talk and, and I know that I've, I've worried that it scares some people, but what I found honestly that I actually can, I, you know, I begin to, you know, I'm not a magician, but I can bend my reality by the way I think and the way I speak and, and, and the way I'm operating, I can actually bend that. And, uh, you know, some of the first things I have people doing when they're, you know, that, that, that all that negative talk, when somebody's coming out of the madness, I start working on their language and the way they talk about things. You know, uh, no long when they say, well, I have to go pick up my kids. I say, you get to, and, you know, and just little things of just starting to just change their mindset. And that will start bending this whole thing a little bit. And, you know, and then later on they're, they're joking at me cause they'll catch me say have to, and they'll go, you get to, and I, yep, you are exactly right. And just that whole, what happens with this mental state. And I don't think anybody really understands it at all. You know, completely. It's probably, it's kind of like higher power. It's, un, it's not, it's not able to be understood, but there definitely is some things going on with the way that I think and the way that I, uh, uh, my mental attitude that, that plays out of how I actually am. If I think I'm okay, I'm okay. If I'm going someplace and I think this is going to suck, then it's going to suck. I love it. I love what you said. I, you know, I get to, right? I, I, that's another thing I talk to people about all the time too. It's like, you don't have to do shit. Yeah. Right. You don't have to do anything. You don't need to do anything. You, everything you do, you choose to do. Yeah. You yeah. choose to do. You're you choosing. Know? And uh, it's like, I don't have to stay clean today. You know, I don't need to, yeah. but I choose to. That's the power, you know? I mean, if I like, God, if I think like I have to, that just seems so depressing. It is. It is depressing. <laughs> and yep. so, yeah, I get to, I choose to, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Really yep. It's, uh, well, the old like, and I get a little email every uh, morning. It's got some different, you know, the 24 hours and all this it's got a whole bunch of different readings in it. And it's got some North American Indian and some Buddha and some other stuff. It's called the daily ponderables. And uh, at the bottom of it, and I, and I use that when I close out the podcast, I got two things and I'll explain just briefly about each one. They say at the bottom of that thing, if you're not enjoying your own recovery, it's your own damn fault. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe in that. Uh, just like I said about bending my reality and, I, and I, I get out of my recovery exactly what I put into it. And the same thing goes for life or the same things will go for your marriage or for your job or for whatever it is. And I choose to put a lot into my recovery because the dividends I've been getting back out of it are worth keeping on getting. And uh, the other thing is, is a friend of mine early on when I wasn't getting this thing and it was because I wanted to lay around and hope it just happened to me. Um, You know, I figured if I would hang around meetings or if I would hang around the right dudes, I'd just start getting better. I wouldn't have to do anything. And, uh, and a friend of mine pointed his finger at me and he, he was a little exasperated at me and he pointed and he said, Dan, the thing is you must participate in your own recovery. And, uh, it took a while for that to sink in. And that's another, like what I was just saying a minute ago, you know, I participate in my recovery at a high level. I try to help a lot of people. I do this podcast and we're trying to deliver 12 steps of people who don't have addictions. And, uh, I just put myself out there trying to help other people today. And, uh, and, uh, participating in my recovery brings a great deal of joy to my life. 
and, uh, and a purpose, a sense of purpose, you know, yeah. to live without purpose is to live at the mercy of chance. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this will happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, I want to thank, thank you, man, for doing this. Yep. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I always have fun doing it. Uh, no matter who I'm talking to, uh, and I take some chances once in a while and have some podcasts that, uh, kind of go in different directions and, uh, uh, stepped into one the other day that somebody, you know, she had her spiritual awakening using, uh, psychosilibin, psilocybin, psilocybin. And, uh, wouldn't necessarily expected it to go that direction, but that was her story. And, uh, it's as, it's as valid as anybody else's story. Who am I to judge? So, uh, I enjoy doing it and I take a chance on it. And, uh, this, this one here turned out great. Cause I really enjoy your company. You'd be a dude I could hang out with. I know. Absolutely, I can man. Tell. Great. You think you and I think a lot alike too. Yep. Yep. Huh? Yep. Uh, I noticed I picked up on that as you was telling your story. I was, I get a little giggle in my mind and I don't want to derail you because you, you're, you're, you got a hold of the deal and you're, you've got that the story is moving just fine and there's no reason for me to interrupt, but I'm thinking, yeah, me too. Me too. That's what I think. And yeah. my story is hard to tell sometimes because it, it, like I have to go in depth with certain things to lead to other things, you know, like the head injury in Chico and sort of leads to, you know, cause I actually ended up having surgery in 2000. Oh, did you? Yeah. And so, um, they, um, it was an alternative. It was called stereotactic radio. It wasn't the traditional brain surgery, um, but it was stereotactic radio surgery. And so it's like a really advanced gamma knife. It's like radiation sort of thing. And the AVM has gone. Wow. Very cool. It did work. Um, yeah. So there were more miracles from recovery as far as I'm concerned, you know, I mean, yeah. surviving brain surgery, something that very easily could have killed you. Yeah. Uh, and now it's, and now it's gone. Yep. No doubt. Very cool. Yeah, our stories build and you know, that's another thing I like about the long form podcast is that somebody can get to feeling pretty complete about their story. I spoke at a, at a treatment center, a woman's healing place here in Louisville Monday night. And, you know, and I, by the time they do the readings at the beginning of the, of it, and then they're going to do some readings at the end, I got some 35 or 40 minutes, to try to pack in my story. Uh, and, and here we get to, you know, feel pretty complete on, on what we talk about, not, not up against the time limit and, and that kind of thing. So I appreciate it. Uh, I'll yeah. we'll stop the recording and just hang on for a minute. I'll close this thing out anyway, but uh, uh, I really do appreciate hearing your story today. I know it's going to help some people. Um, appreciate getting to know you better. Um, it really does mean a lot to me. So I'll close it like this. I'll get your information put in the show notes so that people can get a hold of you. And, uh, and just exactly what I said, if you're not having a blast in your recovery, it's your own damn fault. And I just want to thank everyone out there who's listening and uh, whether the first time or the hundredth, I just want to thank you for allowing Eric and I to participate in our recoveries in this manner today. Peace out. Peace out.